VOCM presents Open Line. The opinions expressed on this show are not necessarily those of the station. And now your host, Patty Daly. Well, all right, and good morning to you. Thank you very much for tuning into the program. It's Thursday, October the 12th. This is Open Line. I'm your host, Patty Daly, and David Williams. He's produced the program. Let's get it going. If you're in the St. John's metro region, the number to dial to get in the queue and on the air, 709-273-5211. Elsewhere, toll-free long distance, 1-888-590-VOCM, which is 8626. And I know you heard Brian Mador mention it, and maybe you tuned into the hockey game last night. Always a bit of fun when the Leafs play the Habs. Now, it was a bit of a sloppy game. The Habs were up 2-0, and they were up 5-3, and as a result of Austin Matthews' hat-trick, off to overtime, losing the shootout 6-5. Notably, of course, Alex Nahook off to a flying start as a member of the Montreal Canadiens with a pair of goals last night. A couple of beauties. Nice finish on a 3-on-2 and then tipped in a point shot. Pretty handsy tip in play. So all off ice, you hear decisions like no more military celebration nights, no more pride nights, can't even put pride tape on your stick, and then you get to the action on the ice. And Austin Matthews, the second quickest NHLer for uh, getting to 300 regular season goals, only behind the great eight Alex Ovechkin. Alright, so Mercer, Dawson Mercer gets uh, his season going tonight. Can anybody tell me for sure if Zach Dean has made the St. Louis Blues for opening night? I haven't seen his name sent down, but nor can I confirm that he actually cracked the big lineup, so anyway, you want to take it on. And on a local front, on the amateur level, congratulations to the Gonzaga High School Male Volleyball Vikings. They were in Halifax over this past weekend, playing in the Dalhousie Classic. They beat a Nova Scotia high school called Bayview High, 17-15 uh, in the third set, so that tourney is about the best high school uh, volleyball teams in Atlanta, Canada. Congratulations to the Vikings. And now back to sports. You know, it is frustrating to watch all the betting ads when you watch a bit of pro sports. And I don't know if you're following along with the baseball, but we can talk about that too. So the Atlantic Lotto report is out. And you know, it does return significant monies to the province. So last year, there was $492.2 million in profit. Newfoundland and Labrador received $148.6 million, uh, $148. million. So in terms of winning, and I always kind of struggle with, you know, talking about the so-called upside of gambling because we know in the world of addictions, it's hugely problematic for a lot of people. 893 Atlantic Canadians won prizes of $10,000 or more on ALC products. 193 of those were here in this province. Commission to the retailers, 121.7 million, that's up 9%. This province has not signed on to Atlantic Lotto's online casino. There's a lot of offerings that you can't access if you're using a computer or a handheld device here in this province. The question I'll throw out there, because we know gambling is a problem, for sure. Some people are able to manage it, but many others can't. When you can go beyond the ALC, there are so many so many betting platforms that you don't even need to entertain the ALC. Some people like to uh, pick up the scratch tickets, you know, the set for lifes or the uh, the tear opens, whatever they what are they called again? The, anyway, the pull tab tickets, and of course playing Lotto Max or the 649 or whatever the case may be. But if we're talking about the money's coming back to the province. Is it a good idea or a bad idea where the province stands with the online casino? Because, again, you can go to a 1,000 or a 100,000 websites and bet on any single thing under the sun, even during the middle of sporting activity. So, ALC money, there you go. Sticking with an Atlantic Canadian-based story. You've heard me many times refer to the Atlantic Loop as potentially not much more than a branding exercise. And now, the province of Nova Scotia, they're out. I don't know if this means the end of the conversation because Nova Scotia would simply be the recipient and to build transmission capacity 
not to generate any of the power that will flow, whether it be to the northeastern United States or anywhere else. Just think about it. The amount of renewables that this province uses compared to Nova Scotia, where over 60% of the electricity comes from burning fossil fuels. A lot of that is from coal, which is exactly why there was federal loan guarantees ever associated with the Muscat Falls project. So they say that they're going to rely on 30% more wind power, 5% more solar, still uh, import hydroelectricity from Muscat Falls via the Maritime Link, but they're out of the whole loop. They say that simply having to build the transmission required what looked like a few years ago to cost $3 billion, now all the way up to $9 billion. They go on to say that the cost of $250 to $300 per megawatt, five times higher than domestic wind supply. So, what does that actually mean for the loop? I was never sure whether or not it was a real thing. You know, they can't even say they can rely on supply coming from the province of Quebec, which has direct implications with the negotiations between those two, our province and Quebec, whether it be with the Upper Churchill, Redress, Gull, all the rest of it. But Nova Scotia is out of any potential play they wouldn't be involved with for the so-called whatever the Atlantic Loop is. And in the whole demand world. So the PUB has dismissed uh, Dennis Brown, the consumer advocate's request for a rehearing of Newfoundland Power's application to look at the supply low demand for electric vehicles and the growth that we are maybe going to experience in the future. Mr. Brown is right on this one, for sure. So there's already $1.9 million paid to the utility for a complete load study on demand needs. That also includes electric vehicles. So even if Newfoundland Power would like to help me understand, if we're already spending almost $2 million on looking at demand, which includes electric vehicles, why is there another $1.5 million required to look at demand uh, because of electric vehicle sales? Doesn't make much sense, but the PUB has sided with Newfoundland Power on this one, and so we're in for about $3.4 million for low demand. And, you know, electric vehicles might not be for you. Totally get it. But just for a reminder and for some context, electric vehicle sales are up and up substantially in this province. So are the hybrid, the plug-in hybrid. So in 2022, they nearly doubled the number of electric vehicles. There was 398 EVs registered in 2022. That raised the number of total province-wide to 715. That represents a 126% increase over the previous year. The hybrids also up 53%, bringing the total number on the road to 2,149. 4.4% of all new vehicles registered last year were either hybrids or full electric vehicles. If you look across the country, in BC, 20% of new vehicles sold last year in that province were EVs. So there is going to be a growing demand. It is sometimes hard to come up with uh, access to one, especially some of the entry-level badge levels. And there's provincial money out there to support it, between three and $4,000, or pardon me, the savings for individuals, maybe between three and $4,000, based on price of fuel, maintenance costs, or what have you. And there is money from the budget that people can avail of as well. So. You know, it's a $2,500 provincial rebate for EVs, $1,500 rebate for plug-in hybrids. That's going to be in place for the next three years. So a couple of notes on the demand for electricity front. And, of course, we still cannot wrap our minds around what it's going to take for interaction with wind projects and their demand for power and how we're going to satisfy that. Forget electric vehicles or anything else. Those demand numbers are pretty staggering. And the plan, behind me, by the end of this month, October 31st, Minister Parsons is going to tell the province which projects will move on to the next phase. By October 31st, will we have an answer as to how we're going to supply any of their power requirements? Hard to say. You know, Hydro's looking at a bunch of different issues. Hatch, the independent uh, company, engineering company brought in, recommends a 150-megawatt diesel generator at Holyrood. I don't know. You want to take it on? 
Let's go. And on the exact opposite side of the energy coin. The media were invited out to Argentia yesterday to look at the progress made for the concrete pour for the West White Rose extension. Pretty impressive engineering marvel, I must say. And Mike Rodofsky, the project manager, former rock, uh, rugby player, you know, the process there, uh, about 83% complete when you include the top sides that are being built in Texas. They're going to both be floated out concurrently to be mated uh, offshore. The entire project, about 70% uh, complete. About 1,000 people working out at Argentia on the project, which seems to be going swimmingly. On the national front, Based on some lengthy shutdowns for maintenance and what have you, and all of these projects coming back on stream, notably whether it be Terra Nova, West White Rose, add in the Alberta oil sands and other parts of uh, Western Canada, Canadian production is looking to be uh, a surge of some 10% this year. The country produced about 4.8 million barrels per day of crude. That's going to jump to about 500,000 barrels a day, by f uh, and up to 5.3 million barrels a day by the end of 2024 all-time high for Canadian production. So the people who are following this and giving us these numbers say it may indeed represent the last hurrah for the oil sands. There has been continued divestment, but it's curious in a country where I'm told the government is hell-bent for leather to kill the industry. Last year, record production, record revenue, record profit. Now we're looking at over the coming 12 months for a, an additional 10% of production. The oil sands represents about 11% of Canada's total greenhouse gas emissions, uh, the, including the natural gas industry, about 15%. So there you go. And in the world of oil production and EVs, what have you, we all know the current play that's in place because of the federal liberals. 20% of vehicles sold by 2026 are to be zero emission, 100% by 2035. So it's a strange, convoluted, contradictory world in the energy landscape. And on the oil issue, we're in the final stages of the construction of the Trans Mountain Pipeline to bring oil from the oil sands to the country's west coast. And you know, add in there about who's on the hook for all of these types of projects and subsidies and tax breaks and the rest of it. So the country bought the Trans Mountain Pipeline for about $5 billion. The cost is now somewhere uh, north of $30 billion that we are all chipping in on. So you want to take it on? We can do exactly that. Again, on the flip side of that particular coin, you know, there's articles going around with some of the uh, looking at flood risk zones across the country, including this province, of which there's a few, but as we're all familiar with, a lot of the province, a lot of the island, is very much steep inclines after you get to the coastal areas. Now, there are some places, whether it be Kitty Vitti, Port of Basque, a place on the so southwest, co southwest coast that could be prone to surges and or floods. On that front, you know, this is a very localized matter, but for folks who live in and around Rennies River, it has long been prone to flooding. You know, we hear some people that have lived there for some 30 years that have experienced maybe five, six, seven serious floods on their property. There's a play in an engineering uh, project in place to build a weir to try to deal with some of the upstream concerns, you know, paving over the bogs and the wetlands which are consuming and absorbing some of the water are now pavement and it's just rushing down Rennies River and of course flooding people out. Apparently, the stumbling block here, if you want to refer to it as that, is the Pippi Park Commission. They need to green light it, but they say that they don't believe that the proposal of uh, building this weir is actually going to do what it's intended to do. So for folks in the Rennies River area, if you want to talk about it, we can do exactly that. All right, a couple of quick healthcare notes before we get going. So the province has settled some 
contracts and uh, collective bargaining with different unions, including QP, NAEP, and the Registered Nurses Union, 2% a year over the course of four years, signing bonuses and the like. And then you add in some of the big cash incentives that are in play, whether it be for doctors in Grand Falls, Windsor, or in Deer Lake, some $200,000 on the table, doctor in Labrador, $300,000 signing bonus. When you see those numbers, and they're pretty big being thrown around, you wonder how that seeps into the impasse that is now between the province and the allied health professionals. They represent some 800 workers in 20 different disciplines, including mental health counselors, social workers, audiologists, dietitians, pharmacists, respiratory therapists. So now they're bringing in a conciliator to try to get to it. We don't really know exactly what's been offered or what's been rejected. And it's not simply about pay if you listen to Gordon Piercy, who's the president of the allied health professionals. They're not ruling out a strike, and I'm not going to doomsday it. But when they see those monies, of course, like everyone else, you want your piece of the pie. Is the offer 2% over the course of four years and a signing bonus, as we've seen with the other bargaining units? We really don't know, but that's going to be something that has to get dealt with because it's not just about disciplines represented by allied health. It's the whole stability of the healthcare system, period. That is, you know, I'm not going to say it's at stake because there's already some pretty big cracks in healthcare, but if you want to take it on. We can do it. Now, I read a cute story this morning about a black bear out in Vancouver Island went into this little gas bar and rummaged through the chocolate bars and uh, settled on stealing a pack of gummy bears. But in this province, hearing some pretty serious reports of the number of bears and the bear activity in Glovertown in particular. Now, there's always been bears in and around Glovertown, but apparently annual sightings this part of the time of the year where they're starting to stock up for their winter hibernation, you know, one or two, and now much more than that. So if you're in Glovertown and want to share an experience of what you see in the community, whether it be the mayor or any of the residents, we can take it on. How are we doing on the telephone this morning, David? All right, very quickly, we're on Twitter. We're VOCM Open Line, follow us there. And, I mean, it's a bit of a hell site, I have to say. But what's becoming really difficult is to disseminate what's real, what's fake, what's accurate, what's misinformation or disinformation. And it's not just Twitter. It's across the media landscape. Like, with some of the most serious issues and conflicts going on in the world, you know, decapitated babies and videos that are being... And I don't know if there's any merit to that story. You know, no one can confirm and or deny at this moment in time. And then videos being shared that we're told are rockets landing in Gaza, which are actually in Syria from a couple of years ago. So it's been extremely difficult to get accurate information, whether it be in the Israeli-Gaza conflict, Russia-Ukraine, because these are consequential issues that knowing exactly what's going on, it's no sense for us to get 50% of the truth 100% of the time. And we know, unfortunately, whether it be mis- or disinformation or a lie, it has traveled all the way around the world before the truth gets out of bed. Sometimes when people see or read a headline, they take it as the gospel truth and nothing reported or clarifications or corrections offered later really do anything to change their perspective on what they initially saw on some of the biggest issues of the day. But we're on social media, we're on Twitter. Do what you got to do. Uh, email address is openlinefeocm.com. Our favorite is when you join us live on the program, which you'll have a chance to do right after this break. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. Well, the mayor of Conception Bay South is Darren Bent, and he joins us this morning on line number five. Good morning. Boy, no, my clicker's not working. Uh, Dave, that's not working here this morning. Good morning, Mayor Bent. You're on the air. Uh, good morning, Patty. How are you today? That's Bob. That's kind. Thank you. How about you? Yeah, not bad. It's a beautiful day here in Conception Bay South. 
Good stuff. A little bit grey here in town, but it's always a little nicer out where you live. Uh, so a caller yesterday called about the trestle. That w- construction was supposed to take place this summer, had not been done. So three levels of government came up with about $1.6 million, finished the trailway, that last 3.2k, I think, replaced the trestle, new signage, root cellar and cannery at the Manual River Centre, but apparently the trestle work was not done. What happened? Okay, so here's how this works, and as you know, Patty, from your experience in the media, uh, the announcement of the funding uh, was done in April of this year, and of course, once you get the funding in place, then there's a lot of work you have to do before you can actually put a shovel in the ground, or in this case, tear down an old bridge. Uh, So that work has been going on through the summer in the background uh, with regards to getting consultants in place, uh, getting things set up for the tendering of the project and so forth. Um, analysis of the bridge and uh, and work has to be done to figure out the safest and best way to remove uh, what's there because it's old, dilapidated, and of course that's why it was required to be replaced before we could go ahead and finish the uh, trailway in that area of town. So that work uh, has been ongoing. Um, the, uh, the tender documents are just about ready to go. Uh, they'll be sent out and uh, we expect construction or demolishment, I guess, and construction of the new bridge uh, to start in the new year. Uh, we expect actually that it'll be completed next year uh, within, within the uh, time frame of the summer and fall of next year. Um, as well, uh, with regards to finishing the trailway in that area, and of course, there's a, it's the final 3.2 kilometers of our beautiful 18-kilometer long trail system in Conception Bay South. Uh, we have actually got the Grand Concourse has been on site uh, in the area of Doyle's Road, which is where the, uh, where the uh, trailway grooming and uh, work had uh, ended. Uh, they're on site there between Doyle's Road and Cemetery Road now. Uh, doing uh, prep work, uh, securing uh, the trailway along the coastline, and uh, getting ready to do the the final work uh, once the trestle is done to get that trailway completely uh, finished and uh, ready for use uh, next year. What have people been doing to try to navigate their way, whether they be recreational boulders or otherwise concealed cove pond? How dangerous or what are they doing? Well, they've been using it, and, uh, you know, it's been a concern for many, many years, as you know, Patty. And, of course, uh, the town has been in consultation with the user groups down there uh, during that period of time and, and and right up until now, of course, and through this project. But this is something that is uh, not safe to travel across. And to be honest with you, I know that uh, they have raised concerns and we have concerns about whether the bridge uh, is sustainable or not in its current condition or for how much longer. And, of course, uh, we were very pleased that uh, finally last year uh, it looked like things were going to move forward. And, of course, this spring the uh, federal government, the provincial government, uh, were able to announce funding that would get that trestle replaced. So the work ongoing now, we believe it's, uh, it's at the end at the, and then, and really truthfully at the very end of its life of just being there. So we're very pleased to be able to get that out of there next year and get something new in place. And, of course, for the safety of the boaters and for the access. And, and of course, next year during the uh, construction phase, access will be limited in that area, which is unfortunate, of course, but uh, the groups that we talked to out there uh, couldn't be happier that this is finally happening after such a long wait. And, of course, we started the uh, uh, trailway system in the town some uh, 10 years ago, and uh, now we are finally in a position to be able to replace this trestle 
and uh, be able to finish the grooming of the entire trailway right through to uh, Indian Pond there at the staging uh, location uh, as we border Holyrood. There's also money for some signage. Now, signage all sounds very fundamental, you know, this way to Seal Cove Pond, this way Doyle's Road, whatever. But there's also an opportunity to highlight, have some storyboards, because there's some pretty historic communities that is part of this trail network. What's the approach to signing? Yeah, so the signage, the wayfaring signage that was announced in the spring as well, along with this project, uh, is actually now in the in the last few days of uh, getting ready for installation. So if you drive through Conception Bay South, and we we're very proud of the uh, of the fact that we have a, a community that has nine communities that have come together to form our town, and we like to highlight those areas because there's so many people here uh, that refer to going to Kellegrews or to Seal Cove or to Upper Gullies or where it may be and we felt that the signage was important and if you drive through the town now you'll see those signs topsail chamberlain's long pond and so forth as you go but you'll also notice that some of them are not in very good shape and uh what's been happening over the past year or two is that we've been working uh with the, with the province and uh and with others uh to uh improve the signage not only in our community but the entire uh northeast avalon so that when people come here to visit they're seeing consistent signage wherever they go that they, they can become familiar with and of course it helps lead them uh, to the places they want to see so uh, over the next, and I'm thinking week, two, three weeks, uh, we're going to start seeing some of the old signage disappear uh, that indicates what community you're in in Conception Bay South, and it'll be new signage saying you're, you know, this is Topsail, this is uh, Chamberlain's, this, and so forth throughout the town. So we're looking forward to seeing that finally improved over. I'm not sure how long those signs have been up, Patty, but some of them have been up for quite a while, and uh, they're in desperate need of replacement. But it's not only us, it's other communities as well. So putting a consistent face on uh, our communities that people can, uh, especially tourists, people that haven't been here before, people visiting, can rely upon as a consistent way of going from community to community, I think is important. What what role does the root cellar and cannery play? I mean, it might be a tourist attraction. What role can it play for community gardens and so-called food security in your area? Yeah, so if you're driving by the Manuals River area uh, over the past two or three months, you'll see uh, construction going on there uh, into the side of an embankment, and uh, that is the root cellar. So if you wonder what's going on there, that is, and it is a community root cellar. And, of course, uh, one of the primary users will be our community garden network in, in the town. We're very proud of the community gardens that we have uh, from one end of town to the other. Well, not fully from one end of town to the other, but certainly from Calgary's to Topsail. Uh, we have community gardens now, and they'll be able to use the uh, cellar, root cellar, uh, to uh, store vegetables and so forth. But also, we're going to invite the general public that if they want to use a section of the root cellar uh, for their own vegetables, they can do so. But it also, look, it, it helps with uh, the idea of food security. It helps with promoting gardening and uh, self-gardening and community gardening. And it's just another uh, piece in that puzzle that uh, that strengthens our food security within our community you know because it, it is it is bigger than simply a tourist getting a chance to look at all traditional methods and canning fruits or vegetables or berries or what have you so i think it's brilliant anything else you want to tell us this morning mayor bent well, I just want to mention something else. Uh, you know, uh, this is our 50th anniversary year, and I know that people have been hearing a lot about this all year long. But I, I just want to highlight a, a big event we got coming up uh, later this month, uh, our 50th anniversary concert, uh, October 27th at the CBS Arena. 
we're very pleased to have Shanaganuck and Rome Ragged. I mean, the favorites are everywhere they go and, uh, and highlighting it. But, you know, we're also very proud that Mallory Johnson and Darcy Scott, both Conception Bay South residents, are going to be on that venue. And uh, it's going to be a great night on October 27th, a Friday night, uh, to celebrate our 50th anniversary this fall. And it's been a great year, Patty, and we've had a, a, lot, of, uh, a lot of fun celebrating, a lot of fun uh, welcoming new people to our community, and it's just been a great year for us. And, uh, you know, I think uh, there are some projects that we've done this year that are going to be legacy projects that you're going to see uh, throughout the coming year, uh, coming years in, uh, in Concession Bay South, and uh, we're going to pick out the best of what we've done and just continue that with our regular programming. So we've had a great year, and I appreciate you uh, giving me the opportunity uh, to talk about the concert. Happy to do it. Uh, congratulations to uh, all of the organizers and the residents of the community of CBS, and appreciate the information on the trestle and the cannery and the like. Thanks. Ab- absolutely. Thank you, Patty, for giving me the opportunity. The very best to you, Mayor Ben. Thank you, sir. Take care. All right, bye-bye. CBS Bear Darren Bent. Let's go to line number three. Good morning, Joseph. You're on the air. How you doing? Doing okay. How you doing? Um, These last couple of months, probably probably the last year or so, I've been hearing the shortage of blood supply. Mm -hmm. It's not enough people donating. Um, So, uh, I mean, how can anybody travel over to St. John's from the West Coast? I, I donated here up till about 10, 20 years ago here on the West Coast uh, in Steenwell area. Uh, now there's no place to even donate here on the West Coast. Uh, I mean, you, uh, they ask you to book online. You can't even get an appointment in our area. It says you can't even book an appointment. So why don't they set up some kind of comeback? You know, it's been 10, 20 years since we can donate and decide. Why don't they set up a, a clinic in Portabas, Steenville, Portaport, Peninsula, Cornerbrook, Deer Lake, St. Anthony. You'll get people do- to donate. Old people can't afford to travel to St. John's. I can't afford to travel to St. John's 500 miles to donate blood. My uncle gave uh, blood 100 times. I gave it 10 times. He talked me into it, and I was very nervous of doing it, and he talked me into it. When I started it, you know, uh, it stopped. Yeah. Well, we used to have it here at the Holiday Inn. It, uh, I used to go in for a little lunch, you know, a little cup of tea and a, you know, muffin and everything. Donate and you know, and people donated. They enjoyed it. He enjoyed it, and he had operations over the years. And he said, "We need this, this service on the West Coast," and then it was canceled. Uh, they didn't even come back. So I mean, there's enough volunteers. There's enough volunteers, probably nurses, lab techs that would, if if they don't have the staff. Somebody could help out. I mean, I, I would even come over and help, you know, set up something here in the Holiday Inn. When there was COVID and when there was uh, the vaccination clinics, they have the buildings to and, and the people, and they pay uh, retired nurses to come in here and give you your vaccinations, give you your COVID shots. Sure. Uh, the Lions Club here in Steenville, the Dome here in Steenville, uh, the port port Peninsula out, out there at the crossroads. There's clinics everywhere. There's Steenville Crossing Clinic. Port of Bass, I mean, all these places could be utilized to give, donate blood. They're saying they had a, only blood, whatever, zero or whatever it is, I can't mention blood O or whatever. They, they were only like a day or two supply. 
I mean, so if we need it, why don't they bring the services back here? I, I can't speak for them, but I'm sure it's a staffing and a money issue. But you're 100% right. There's always ongoing plea for blood donation, whether it be yeah. uh, O and or plasma donations. My wife's a blood donor. She cleared 100 there a couple of weeks ago. So yeah. it's a fair question. Maybe Canadian Blood Services would like to come on and explain it because I'm sure they'd be able to uh, entice a bunch of people to donate. You know, so yeah, whether I'll it be... probably even try too, right? You know, uh, again, because it takes takes a lot to go in and donate because you know just to build your confidence to go in there and do it but you're nervous and everything but people are wanting to donate here and there's not you you go online it says oh uh, give us your area code you put on your area code and it's you can't even you can't even put it in so. Fair enough. We'll see if we can get uh, Canadian Blood Services on the show. Okay, yeah, so we have be the mobile clinics and or rotating clinics through some of the other communities. Yeah, fair ball, and I can't answer for them, but we're happy to try to get them on because there's been some developments yeah. in the world of donating blood as well, whether it be cancer patients and the like. So there's maybe a few angles we can take with them, so we'll invite them on. Yeah, okay, I appreciate it. And like you say, it's on the radio, I know, a dozen times, and I, I'm after calling four or five times, but, you know, getting the call in is hard, right? Absolutely. I'm glad you brought it up. We'll see if we can get some answers. All right, then. Thank you. Thanks, Joseph. Take care. Bye-bye. Yeah, it's a fair question because there's ongoing plea, urgent plea and need for blood. So, Dave, did you, did you say take another one? Okay, let's keep going. Let's go to line number one. Dave, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Good morning to you. Uh Perhaps you know more like this than I do, but oh, it come to my attention in the last week or so that uh, places like Salvation Army and uh, family aid uh, stores that sell used clothing that's donated by families and, the, and people who have uh, loved ones deceased uh, are not being taxed for the clothing that they're selling to buy uh, food for uh, for helping like, poor families in uh, towns around uh, the island. I wonder when did this tax, uh, when did this come about or how was it approved? Well, it's always been allowed, but generally, and my understanding is for the longest while, no GST, HST on used clothes sales uh, in the country. Now, you're allowed to do it, but, you know, the last time I went into one of those shops, I did not pay tax. So that was, you know, pre-pandemic, so I don't know what's happened since then. But I don't know. That's a good question. And I don't know why it's all of a sudden reappeared or appeared for the first time. I know they're allowed to charge it, but many of them did not for the obvious reasons. They're serving a clientele that are purposefully shopping for used, gently used clothes for price point pressures and or you know to try to get some retro action in their closet so good question where did you pay tax well uh, at the time the east over here in marystown they're charging taxes and uh, at the salvation army i think they're doing the same but in the meantime the the money that's uh, taken in from the those used clothing boots or whatever is being used to buy groceries to give to hampers to poor people so that don't make sense to me that the government would dip into a uh, into something like that is disgusting as far as I'm concerned. I guess we'll be told that you're not paying tax on the good, you're being uh, paid tax on the service, because that's right there in the acronym of goods and services tax. So I'm, I'm guessing that's how they're justifying it in their business model minds, is that you're not paying a tax on the product, you're paying a tax on the service. But anyway, I didn't know that was in place in some of these stores. Yeah, but it do amount to the same thing uh, when you reach. Well, yeah, of course, it's uh, you know that's right. It doesn't matter what the charge is for; it's how much you paid. Period. I understand. <laughs> but uh, I was just wondering if you know anything about it. perhaps somebody else. Well, and uh, thank you. No problem at all. Appreciate the call. Have a good. Okay. Have a good day. You too, Dave. Bye bye. 
Yeah, because there's a couple of these stores right here in very close proximity to the studio on Camount Road. I know people who are operating some of these stores, and they can uh, chime in and tell us whether or not they are charging the GST and if that's something new and why. But anyway, let's take a break. When we come back, we're going to talk about the LSPU Supper Club. It's back. It's going to be touring arts and culture centers around the province. Willow Keene is a playwright and actor. She's behind the LSPU Super, uh, pardon me, Supper Club. And then yesterday we found out that there's guaranteed delivery dates for products being shipped to the North Coast before the winter season and the ice season kicks in. Leila Evans, of course, is the MHA for the Torngat Mountains. We'll speak with her, and then we'll speak with you. Don't go away. Saturday morning, join us for the Irish Newfoundland Show. Send your request to irishnl at vocm.com or submit them online at vocm.com. Welcome back to the program. Well, not to be cavalier, but many of us have a so-called complicated relationship with food. Maybe we find some solace or comfort or maybe angst associated with how we interact with our food. No more complicated food stories than brought to you by the LSPU Supper Club. Willow Keen is a playwright and actor behind the LSPU Supper Club. They're on tour and we're going to hear about it right now on 4. Good morning, Willow. You're on the air. Hi, Patty. How are you? Excellent today. Thank you. How about you? I'm grand. I'm grand. Thanks so much for uh, for having me on today. So a five-course meal over the course of five evenings, five really interesting stories regarding relationship with food. Where do we start? Uh, well, that that's basically it. The story is about uh, five women of, um, of various ages who gather together once every couple months, and they each take turns hosting a dinner party. And uh, they're from all, all, like I said, all ages and all walks of life. And uh, basically, you know, hijinks ensue and, and um, friendships are formed and friendships are kind of broken and, and healed up again. And it's um, it's mostly like a really great night out and a really good laugh to have with your with your friends, you know, not just a girls' night out, but a fellows' night out too. And it's um, we we did the show in November of 2021, and it was a huge success. So now uh, the Arts and Culture Center has picked it up for a tour, which we're really excited about. Eclectic uh, group of women at these dinner parties here from very diverse backgrounds. Where do we start with that one? My favorite, of course, is the exhausted suburban, uh, suburban hockey mom. Yes, yes, which I think a lot of us, I'm not a hockey mom, but I am a mom, so I could definitely relate to, to, to that. Uh, yeah, we're kind of all over the map. Like the women uh, range in ages from like 20s to 30s. There is a, a doctor running her own, her, uh, her own medical practice. There is a, a Cuban artist who is a relatively new Canadian. Uh, there is a uh, anthropologist who teaches at the university and uh, a medical receptionist who's recently turned vegan, which is a bit of an issue for all the, all the ladies around the table. And, and yes, there is the uh, the exhausted suburban hockey mom with, uh, with three boys. I don't imagine, like most vegans, you hear about the fact she is a vegan a lot. Okay, and that was a bit saucy, but I meant it. <laughs> it's, it's not a play. It's not an anti-vegan play. It's just we kind of we kind of discuss stuff about it. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> One of the interesting things, do people ever find out, because sometimes it's just happenstance that brings people together, and you know, a lot of that is because of food and sharing food and time at the table but sometimes we don't really know how we all became supper party people and how we all came together do we ever find out why this group exists and whether or not it's sustainable because you know there's always going to be the quiet backbiting and that kind of stuff even at the most robust supper party groups Yes, we uh, we do find out throughout the course of the play how they all how they all kind of came together. Um, this the inspiration for this play started with my my supper club. I'm in a supper club, and while you know we've never come to blows over anything, um, I was kind of like brought into this this uh, group of women by a roommate into this group of like ten women who I'd never met before, and we've been cooking for each other for the past ten years. Um, and so you know it's it's amazing that when you sit down with people who you might not know over food, you you kind of get to know them really quickly, and that that's that was 
kind of the inspiration for uh, for for me writing this play. Are you a good cook? I'm a great cook. I'm not going to lie, Patty. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm not, you know, I'm no, I'm no Jeremy Charles or anything, but I do. I mean, like, I love food. I love it a lot. And um, it's just, yeah, I've traveled a lot, and that's always been kind of like an inspiration for me for cooking. And, you know, sometimes I go overboard with the curry and the spice and, you know, do some stuff that a lot of people might not might not be into in terms of different kinds of foods. But, you know, it's, it's always a... Sometimes when people come to my house, I was, I'm like, okay, you're my guinea pig. This is what we're having tonight. So if you don't like it, you can lump it. <laughs> you're my kind of cook. And, of course, it's uh, directed by Nicole Russo. Uh, got a pretty nice cast in hand. What do you want to tell us, whether it be with, when you're on tour, where to get tickets, or who else is performing? Absolutely. Uh, well, our cast is just, we've got, like, such a great lineup of women. It's its incredible. Um, Vanessa Cardoso-Whalen is in it. She's a local uh, clown and dancer and, and, and actor, and she does a bit of everything. She's, uh, she's fabulous. Um, we've got two new cast members joining us this year. Who uh, we have, We've had two cast members who couldn't make it back for this run, so we've got two new ones. Uh, Una Hill McMullen is joining us, uh, and Amelia Manuel, who a lot of you may, may know from uh, Review. Um, she's done quite a bit of work with Rising Tide. And um, Alison Woolridge is playing our university professor anthropologist, who a lot of you might know because she, um, she did Telltale Harbor with Alan Doyle and also just did the Come From Way show on Gander. So she'll be a familiar face to a lot of people. And I'm in it. I'm in it as well. I, you know, I broke the play and I decided to put myself in it as well. Like you would. Uh, so when do you start the tour? Uh, we we actually have three shows here at the LSP Hall downtown before we leave on tour. So that's uh, October 27th, 28th at 8 p.m. And there is a 2 o'clock show on October 29th. So you can go to the lspuhall.ca to get tickets for that. And then uh, we are on the road. We do November 1st in Gander, November 3rd in Grand Falls, Windsor, November 6th in Cornerbrook, and November 9th in Steamville. And those are all at the Arts and Culture Centers. And you can... Um, you can get tickets on the website and we're kind of telling people we'd love to get bums in the seats it's you know it's fall it's a bit gloomy it's a great night out at the theater and you know if you like if you like the movie bridesmaids this is kind of like bridesmaids but about food so that's the kind of spin we're putting on it this might be a bit of a strange question and i've never been in the theater world but you know you get comfortable with your surroundings i mean i'm not necessarily a performer although maybe i am doing this program but your surroundings really kind of dictate your mood your approach how you execute is it any different for a, a stage performer there's a big difference between being in the arts and culture center versus being in the intimate room and the setting that is the lspu hall does it change how you approach the evening it, yes and no. Um, it is th- this show is is a uh, it's a show for kind of a smaller space. So with that said, now the the hall is great for stuff like that. The arts and culture centers are, are a bit big. Uh, we will be mic'd, so so you know people won't have an issue hearing us or whatever. But I find that like a lot of that depends on the audience. Like I've I've performed on all all of those stages over the years, and if you get a good audience that's really warm, it it's almost like you're in an intimate space anyway. Do you know what I mean? It's uh-huh. really, um, it, it kind of depends a lot on the audience. And, you know, so we're, we're hoping to get a lot of people out to see it. And it's really, um, when we performed the show two years ago, we caught that sweet little pocket before Omicron. And we were allowed to have full capacity masks. And we could, you know, the bar was open. And we were like, oh, wow, theater's back. This is so great. And people were so joyful and happy to be there. And it was really, like, quite an emotional experience. So we lucked out into this, like, tiny little pocket like the theater gods were smiling at us because like i think 10 days after we closed everything shut down again so um 
So we're hoping that, you know, we have another another run of luck with uh, with this go this time. And, uh, you know, it's really funny. We had a, we've had a lot of people come out to see it. Um, and, you know, to be frank, it's not often that women of a certain age see themselves depicted on the stage and on the screen in ways that are true. You know, you get a bunch of women, you know, five women sitting around a, a, a table and there's wine involved and maybe some other things like stuff gets kind of messy, you know, and funny and crude. And, and um, the play is, you know, it's it's saucy, but you can take your nan if she's saucy, like my nan was. God love her. So, so we uh, it's a good night out for your girlfriends or your boyfriends or your fellas. And um, it might be a play with five women, but it's it's really a play for everybody. If you love food and you love laughing and you don't mind the occasional, you know, f bomb or swear word, like it's it's going to be a good time. <laughs> When there's one involved, there might be a scattered F-bomb. Okay. Oh, scatter, yeah. <laughs> so you can get your tickets at the LSPU Hall, at the box office, of course, the Arts and Culture Centre box offices as well. Break a leg, Willow. Appreciate the time this morning. Thank you so much. Take care, Patty. You too. Bye-bye. Okay, bye. That's Willow Kane behind the LSPU Supper Club. Okay, let's take a break. Well, as we mentioned, there has been a guaranteed delivery day for supplies heading to the Labrador North Coast. Leila Evans is in the queue to talk about that. And Don wants to talk about rent increases at long-term care. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number six. Say good morning to the NDP member for Torngat Mountains. That's Leela Evans. Good morning, Leela. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Last time we talked, it was about a variety of things, but one of the key items was talking about supplies being shipped to the uh, north coast of Labrador. So everything that's going to be bound, freight bound for the north coast has to be on the dock at Goose Bay by 7 p.m. on Thursday, November the 9th. What should we, what's the takeaway here? Because this just seems like a very fundamental date on a calendar issue. What, how, do you, how do you read this story? Well, Patty, I mean, uh, we always have that uh, cutoff date uh, yeah. for deliveries to the North Coast, November 9th. Uh, and what they have to do is they have to ensure that all the materials and uh, items that's needed to be shipped can actually be delivered to the North Coast. And we're looking at all the groceries, building materials, you know, a larger, anything that can't fit on the Twin Otter. Uh, you know, needs to be shipped by November the 9th if you want to get it because once once the shipping season is over, uh, there's no way you'll be able to get those items up to the North Coast until, uh, you know, the, the service re- resumes again in, you know, in late June. Um, so that's a long time, Patty. And like for my district of Northern Labrador, it's, it's like we're up in the Arctic in terms of services. Uh, you know, t- transportation is dependent on the weather. Um, so, like for for us, we we might as well be living up, uh, you know, uh, up in the Arctic, uh, relying on the sea lift in, in a lot of ways. But but anyway, um, so it, it's an important date, um, and also too, it's it's not only about the materials that can fit in this, into a small plane, a twin otter. A, a lot of people can't uh, afford the cost, like say for example, of flying up a, a snowmobile. Uh, because they're looking at weight, they also cube it. So, you, you know, that they, they, they can't afford that. So, um, you know, they, they have to ship it on the boat. So it's, it's a really important service for us. Is it, if everything that's dropped off on the dock at Goose Bay by the cutoff of 7 p.m. Thursday, November 9th, does that ensure that it all will get shipped by Labrador Marine? Because we're told that there's been a big uptick in uh, construction on the North Coast. And, of course, building materials occupy a lot of space when compared to some groceries. So does everything that gets dropped off guaranteed get shipped? It, it has to, and uh, it's been a bit touchy. Like I said, you know, um, we, we've been we've been fortunate with the with the shipping seasons. But like, if we have if we have a, a an early winter, uh, where where you know the ice thickens quickly, 
it, it really could create a lot of problems. And in the past, you know, growing up, I've, I've known about items that were ordered and shipped and, and never got to, to the North Coast. And uh, that's when I was a child uh, and uh, as as a youth and then as a teenager and now as an adult, you know, we, we still incur that because we're not connected by, uh, by a road, right? How many people live on the North Coast of Labrador in the various well, communities? Um, well, we have the we have the six communities. Uh, you know, we have Rila, which is the the closest community to uh, to Happy Valley Goose Bay, which is where the Trans Labrador Highway is. We also have Postville and McCovic, and we also have Hopedale, which is a bit more northerly, uh, and then we have Napishish, which is the Inu community. A lot, a lot of people think it's just the the uh, the. Um, sorry, Inuit community. A lot of people think it's just the the Inuit in, in my district, but we also have the uh, the Inuit of Napishish. And in actual fact, Patty, I might point out when they took off that freight boat from 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 the island, the Inuit were so concerned about getting their materials up into Napishish, they actually bought um, uh, the Northern Ranger uh, uh, ferry. Um, uh, that that could carry freight, and they refinished it, refurbished it, and and used it uh, for two years uh, to get a lot of their materials up because of that guaranteed delivery. Uh, what we're seeing now with construction and just one vessel for passengers or our personal vehicles um, and, and freight, what we're seeing is it's very very congested and uh, it's, cre- it's creating problems now. When when I criticize the service, I I, I want I want to also point out we have some good people working with Labrador Marine. Like you know, I, I just want to give a shout out to Dave Layden, who uh, actually works miracles sometimes. Uh, you know, he works closely with me when I, I bring forward issues. So I'm not criticizing individuals in in their capacity in their role. Uh, you know, when when I talk about uh, about the service and when we have problems, but but for me, it, it's important uh, for people out there listening to really understand the logistics of the service and the importance. The you know, it, it's a critical link for us, and a lot of people, um, you know, in, you know, in in the province, don't really realize that, and so they sometimes think we're just complaining. But we're complaining about getting our, all, our, all, all our food into the communities. If not, it got to be flown in, which, which increases the cost. And that's really hard on the small businesses as well. It's not just the people buying the food. Uh, you know, the small businesses, they, they juggle. Like, I, you know, I, I talk to some of the smaller business people, like in, in Postville, uh, you know, one store, it's a local business person, he's an upstanding member of the community. And he said, Leela, like, sometimes I have trouble sleeping because... Like essential food that may cost a bit more to ship, yeah, that people really need, especially like the elders or low-income families. He said, sometimes I mark that down and take a loss on it and try and mark up something else that's more of a luxury item. A business person shouldn't have to be doing that. And and that's what we're doing because of we, we lost that freight boat, Patty. I, 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 I can't stress enough to the people of Newfoundland and Labrador that it's it's really impacting our quality of life and and so I, I try to to let people know why the background and also to what's what's happening 
Lila, not to put you on the spot, but I wonder if you'd like to offer comment on some of the news stories we're hearing about. For instance, going back to Premier Fury's decision to apologize to survivors of residential schools, to members of a Nunatukavut community council versus the Inuit of the Nazivut, and of course, now there are stories today about going back to 2019 when the Memorandum of Understanding was signed between the federal government and the NCC. It seems to be brewing pretty hot. Would you like to comment? Well, Patty, like, I, I have to be careful because, like, for me, as, as an MHA, I, I, I want to tell people I don't politic on, you know, on, on stories. And I could, as an MHA that's advocating for the district, talking about the cost of food and the cost of heat in your house and, and some of the problems that we've had with this Minister of Labrador Affairs uh, and her government. You know, uh, like you know, um, there's many issues there. I, I, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna weigh into that and, and and try and take advantage of it for personal gain. This is this is too important, uh, and it's, it's important for all the truth to come out. Uh, you know, like with the, with the Inu um, and and Nunasibut, they've said that this has been ongoing now, uh, way before the you know the the recent apology. This has been many issues that they have documented uh, and is falling on deaf deaf ears, uh, and that's the parallel. Like I, I'm I'm the MHA for Tornat Mountains, and, and you know I'm advocating for my district uh, for for basic access to services, and I do have problems with this government, but for me to weigh in. Uh, I don't want to take attention away or try to take advantage of that. I, I think it's something that I think the 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 um, the Inu Nation, the Nazivut, and the Premier and the, the the provincial government, the Liberals, they they have to work that out themselves uh, and and get that that resolved. You know, I I am certainly not going to take advantage of that because that lessens my credibility as a as a um, MHA and advocate for for the people in my district. And it obviously has federal implications as well. I appreciate the time this morning. Thank you for the call, Leela. And thank you for having me on. Patty, thank you very much. Take care. Bye-bye. Leela Evans is NDP member for Torngat Mountains. Uh, will I take Don here, David? Because we're not sure up against it. Let's go to line number two. Don, you're on the air. Hi. Good morning, Patty. Morning. Um, I wanted to speak to you this morning about an issue that's facing many seniors in our province. Right now, there's about 25% of our province are 65 years or older, and this number is, as you know, only forecasted to increase over the next decade. Patty, imagine getting a note slipped under your door that your rent is going up $457 a month starting in 30 days. That's $5,500 a year. That's a whopping 14% increase. And is this in a provincially run and operated facility like LTC or something? No, this is a private for-profit okay. business. Okay. But the reality is this was a this was a reality for a senior living at Kingsway Living Personal Care Home in Paradise. Patty, it's recently came to my attention that these private personal care homes in Newfoundland and Labrador operate outside of any regulation pertaining to rent increases or notification periods. They don't fall under the Resident Tendency Act, which means there's no set limits on the amount of rent they can increase. There's no notification period. So I'm not sure if you're aware or not, but on September 28th uh, of this year, the Department of Health and Community Service announced they were increasing monthly rates provided for government subsidized bed in these personal care homes. Mm-hmm. 
which was to support operators except more residents who require higher level care. But Patty, as you may be aware, seniors, many who have worked really hard their whole life, if they have a pension or if they were able to save personal savings, they don't qualify for these government subsidies. But the owners of these personal care homes took this opportunity to increase rent for all the residents. Many who, as I mentioned, don't qualify for these subsidies. A number of them are facing rent increases of 10% plus. It's very stressful for them, their families. They have 30 days to come up with that money out of pocket or find new housing if they can afford it. So for units that fall under the Residential Tenancies Act, it's six months notice before there's an increase in rate, three months notice before a potential eviction. So they don't have to abide by that, which I was unaware no. of. So will some of these increases consequently see some of these seniors qualify for some support because it's all based on income threshold? Yes, but the threshold has not gone up. Those who, some, of, some may fall in under the qualification, but many will not. This lack of rent control is affecting our most vulnerable, the seniors. Around, I guess it was probably around the early 2001, Clyde Wells' liberal government began to deregulate the home care industry. So these personal care homes are private, for-profit business providing care to seniors, but they are private, and I understand that, but they are using significant money from our government. So I think there needs to be some accountability. This most recent announcement gave an additional investment of $15.4 million for these operators with increased subsidy rates. So yes, they are private, but they are getting significant government support. But there's many who still don't qualify for the subsidies and to come up with an additional Three hundred, three fifty, four hundred dollars a month, with little or no notification. It's very stressful, Patty. I just felt this was an issue that should be shared and addressed due to the aging population here in Newfoundland and Labrador. These private operators are receiving government funding, so who are under no legislation for regarding rent control, and I think this really needs to be reassessed. I couldn't agree more. Uh, for, for starters, I'd like to know why they're exempt, because th- that's really the unknown here in this story so far. I'm pretty sure someone from the newsroom might want to speak with you as well, Don, because there's more to this, and we'll give us all an opportunity to get down to the brass tacks as to why they're not under the Act, number one, and justifications for those types of rent increases if it's not going to be commensurate with maybe more and more access to some government support, very much like the owners get. Yeah, no, um, I mean, I am I am speaking on a personal basis as well, representing a senior in my family, yep. um, does not qualify for the subsidy. Therefore, that amount has to come out of pocket. Her neighbor in the same facility is in the same situation. And, um, you know, they've been crying about it. It's been very stressful for the families. They've created a home in these facilities and... You know, $5,000 extra a year is significant for many families, and especially for a senior on a fixed income, um, who do still have to pay out of pocket for some drugs and other care outside of these facilities. Um, 
so you know they're very limited in uh, their ability to cover these significant increases i'm glad you told us about it here this morning i am going to follow up maybe the newsroom will do it as well i really appreciate the time anything else quickly don before i have to get to the news no, that's, I just wanted to get this out there and get it out in the news. So, um, you know, I think this is something that we definitely um, should be looking at based on our aging population and the effect on our most vulnerable seniors. No question. Really appreciate the time, Don. Thank you. Thank you. You're welcome. Bye. Bye-bye. All right, let's get to the break for the news. That's a real big one. Uh, break. When we come back, moose fencing. Don't go away. Every Saturday is perfect for a night at the cabin. The Cabin Party with Brian O'Connell. Saturday night starting at 7 p.m. on VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number four. Cyril, you're on the air. Yes, good morning, Patty. Morning to you. Yes. Uh, Last uh, week I saw a lot of people calling in uh, about uh, the moose and uh, brush cutting and fencing and everything. Mm -hmm. Uh, Yes, I think there should be a lot more... uh, uh, brush cutting, well, I fences as well, you know what I mean, that's a, that's a big uh, thing to take on. I know we're in Newfoundland with all the, all the roads, you're not going to do, uh, you're not going to do everything, but I guess you could do some hot spots. But anyway, uh, there was a gentleman there called in there last week, I think Linda was on the, and uh, about people's driving habits, too. Well, myself, I had a moose accident uh, there four years ago. And uh, just about took me out. And anyways, uh, but it was uh, dark in the evening. Moose came up on the road, and uh, and I didn't see it. But anyway, I spent uh, a lifetime uh, fishing uh, Cataliner, St. Mary's Bay, uh, uh, St. John's, and we we hardly ever travelled nighttime. If we came in in the evening and it was before dark, before we got cleaned up to come home, got in the bunk, and the next day, next morning, we got up and come home. Wouldn't wouldn't drive nighttime, especially tired. And because I, well, not only me, but a lot of people, we 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 seen uh, uh, back a few years ago. Uh, uh, I stopped for a moose on the road. The, the cars was behind me, came up, one of them in particular hauled out and, and went around me just to be struck the, the moose. And they saw it, like uh, a lot of people have, uh, have told me about uh, people who uh, tried to beat them. We, I, I call it beat the moose, like moose running up the highway and they tried to haul it around and pass it and the moose cutting over on top of them and putting them off the road or tearing the bottom up or something. But anyway, I got one particular uh, story I'd like to be able to uh, tell you about. Uh, I uh, went in St. John's one time back, oh, probably seven or eight years ago. I got my son, so he came in to the airport, so we had to come home. He was driving. So we got in up to Goobies, stopped for a few minutes, and we left to come over. Now, we turned over to Trans-Canada to come down here in the southwest. I'm there uh, up in uh, uh, Northwest Brook. So we didn't have far to go. So anyway, I spoke about it to him. I said, now, you better take your time because we knew it was moose in the area. It was reported it. And anyways, uh, lo and behold, we, from the intersection where you turn up the Buren Peninsula there, we never come not, not a thousand feet and the moose was in the road and on, the, on the highway. So anyway, we uh, started blinking our lights. Some cars was coming towards us. They stopped and the moose was still out in the road. So we uh, 
naturally we well really we we couldn't get through anyways. So any it was only the, the matter of a minute or two, and this truck we seen them coming with a one of those big uh, lights up on the roof, LED lights, lit up the whole thing. But he did not stop. He was flying and runs into the moose. Uh, they no one hurt real bad. They all got out before him in the truck. And uh, man, his wife and, and uh, two other passengers in the back. And while we were over to see what they, you know, if they were it or not, now we, and when this was going on, we had our emergency lights on, blinking our lights, trying to stop the traffic. And when uh, the opposite way coming from the service stations, coming around, there was another one. And this was a young lady. She done the same thing. Come through. She had like to run over the moose. And and all those five or six cars, everybody there with lights on, brake lights and everything. And 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 they didn't stop. So uh, there was a gentleman out there the other morning on, and he was saying the same. There's people's a lot of accidents. People's driving habits. You know, people don't want to don't want to slow down. They they just keep on going. I don't know. Uh, uh, since I've been talking about this to people, there was a moose kill up there at Haiti town there last week, and while they were there, uh, three or four guys, was, somebody came uh, along and ran over the moose. So, you know, I don't know. Uh, well, uh, for me, the moose vehicle collision story has always been all-encompassing. It's not just one thing. I mean, the, certainly fencing can be quite helpful. You will see moose on the uh, wrong side of the fence, we'll call it, in certain places where there are fences. But it is the rate of speed, the time of day, the weather conditions, the alders. I mean, it's everything, isn't it? Because if you, if all was paid attention to, and of course the ultimate for many people would be fencing, but with the alders cut back and driving commensurate with the weather and the time of day and all those types of things, those are the methods that are going to protect us as we travel the highways and byways. So uh, when we focus in on one, we're probably eliminating some of the other contributing factors. Yes. Uh, well, down uh, I live down here on this uh, peninsula. Uh, moose wasn't very thick down there one time. But now uh, I could get up in the morning and a moose out my back garden. You know, and and that's the, and everything is growing up. Uh, I don't know if you hear people talking. I know it's this way. Uh, like people just up the road. I mean, one time I could uh, the roses and the lights nighttime. And now I can hardly see the roses. Uh, everything is growing up a lot more than what it was years ago. And that's like going along the road. Uh, all those uh, like coming down this way from the Transcandler, or or if you go down a random island, or or wherever you go gluten goobies and the the roads is not just uh, not cut back to you know the the, the hollers are growing out in the roads and uh, and the same thing wherever you go you know I must say now when I had the moose accident uh, up on the Bureau Peninsula at that time it was cut back but it was just one of them things that the moose just came right up out of the ditch and uh, from that day to this I well I didn't even see the moose and I didn't even know what happened until I uh, actually had uh, sirens and everything. And I spent uh, 10 days in intensive care, and, uh, you know, just about bite the bullet at the time. But uh, and I got to say this, I, I, I never said then, and I haven't said since, that I want to kill all the moose in Newfoundland because I had an accident.
you know, the them things happens and and that. But like I said, another thing, a lot, a lot of people do a lot of travel in nighttime at high speeds, and because I and uh, and that's the time in the in the evening or early in the morning. You know, I I've had to drive and and uh, for certain reasons, but I always takes me time and keeps looking. It was only just a few weeks ago I came home from my son's. I. Uh, uh, happened to be it was like nine o'clock in the night and uh, didn't go very far moose on the road but you know what i mean i was only going fairly slow only half half of what the speed limit was so you know what i mean i i never had no problems seeing that moose if that had been uh some other people bingo they would have you know wherever were the uh, there's a place up there by 80 town and I don't know what it is, is, is the elevation of the road or whatever, but I'll I'll say that in the run of a year, there's at least six or seven moose killed in that area. Uh, there's a place that the moose crosses the Transcan there, and, you know, like, th- that's a place that maybe they should be fencing or, or something put up, but, you know, uh, out there the goobies. From uh, from over there to to Sunnyside, uh, well, all the way through really to Clownville is a, there's an awful lot of moose. The uh, uh, the track is up on just on the back. There's a lot of moose come out of the comes in from the Burma Peninsula and and crosses the Trans Canada. You you can almost go up there almost any any time. Okay. And if you if you mind to look around and spend enough time, you'll see a moose up there crossing. They're out there, and people have to be uh, well aware of it all the time. You know, it's certain uh, certain times of the year is more dangerous than others, but not to say you're ever going to be completely safe out there. Cyril, I'm glad you're still around to have this chat this morning. Thanks for the call. So am I. Thank you for taking it. Take good care. All right, bye-bye. All right, let's take a break. When we come back, we're going to talk about the difference in the price of gas in various regions, and also Sean's in the queue to talk about wind energy. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number six. Good morning, Juan. You're on the air. Oh, yes. Hey, hey there. Good morning, Patty. I hope you're doing well. Doing great, thanks. Um, yeah, um, my wife and I, we just spent a couple of weeks down in the States. Um, you know, the main purpose is to assist my 93-year-old mother with, um, um, you know, uh, a move into a retirement center and everything. But just had a couple of, of observations of, um, like, you know, how things are in the States. Um, we... Let's see, we spent time both in Tennessee and in North Carolina, and as you probably know, in the States, there's a federal gas tax, which is a requirement for every state, but then um, uh, each state is allowed to add an initial gas tax on top of that. And so when I was in Tennessee, I got gas as low as uh, $2.99, a gallon, and it was usually about three oh four, three oh five, and then in North Carolina, it was in um, um, in the range of like uh, three twenty nine, uh, I don't know thereabouts, and so I um, uh, I just really commend the people up here in the province for. I mean, if you do a little bit of math and you calculate those prices as opposed to if you went up with a dollar eighty 
a leader up here, which I've seen that you, you can see a substantial difference, obviously, in the, you know, the price of gas. And then just, um, just very quickly, uh, another um, a thing that you notice in the States uh, is the status of the current vaccines. Before we move off gas, before we get to the vaccine. Yeah. So in the United States, much like in Canada, the federal t- tax on gasoline has not changed since it was put in at 10 cents. In the States, it's about 18.5 cents, I think, maybe. And that's been in place and hasn't yeah. changed since 1993. The big comparison here is if you try to compare the apples and the oranges here, you have to convert from gallons to liters, obviously. There's something like 3.75 liters in a gallon. Yeah. Average price in the United States, you know, when you incorporate the just average right across all of the states, is about 360. That translates to about in and around seven bucks uh, when you do the conversion into uh, how we pay and the, the measurements we use. So it is a big deal here. We pay somewhere in the neighborhood of inside a buck eighty, we'll say, because th- the average between dollars uh, seventy-seven and a dollar eighty-eight. So let's just say dollar eighty. We pay somewhere in the neighborhood of fifty-two and a half cents in tax inside that buck 80 so it's significant you know when you add in the carbon tax which is now at 14 cents the pro the federal tax is 10 percent then the provincial tax there's been a holiday given for half of that tax so it's around 8.8 cents at this moment in time then it's the taxes on the taxes at the end which is really frustrating there's also five cents a liter that continues to go to silver peak those are the folks that were formerly behind come by chance so there's the difference in the price of fuels uh, yeah, I, I mean, I think it's, uh, you know, it's uh, it's incredible. Of course, you also, um, uh, I think in the conversation, just have, have to remember, um, you know, in the States, unfortunately, they don't, um, you know, guarantee a basic level of health care, you know, to the citizens in the States, like sure. just here, you know, in, in Canada, which is... Uh, I mean, I, uh, I think that's an incredibly wonderful thing to do, and 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 well, and I guess that that leads, um, you know, to the other part, um, you know, about the status of vaccines in in the states. Um, apparently, well, well, no, I mean, it's not apparently. You can walk into um, any major grocery store and or like a CVS or a Walgreens, walk up to to the counter, say that you like. Um, uh, either the new COVID, the high dose flu, because um, I'm a senior, or in the states, which is available, the new RSV vaccine. And so um, that's basically what we did. We walked up to the counter at CVS. We both got the new COVID vaccine. Um, I got the high dose flu vaccine, and then we both got the new uh, RSV vaccine. And um, under our insurance and everything, there was absolutely no cost and there was no wait. So, um, you know, that's just, you know, just a couple of, uh, of, of observations that that we noticed and everything, um, you know, when we were down down in the States. So Fair just, enough. Just wanted to go in the States, so. I appreciate the time, Juan. Thanks a lot. Okay. Take Have care. Day. All right, you too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. 
It's our American friend Juan who chimes in. Those gas price comparisons are very, very real. Now, different parts of the states, just like in Canada, different parts of the country with vastly different prices for fuel. So when I look at it, you know, it's easier just to come up with average price when we do a comparison from dollars and gallons to liters and dollars. All right, uh, Dave, you want me to take a call here before we get to the break? Yeah, uh, line number one. Do it. Let's go. Line number one. Sean, you're on the air. Oh, hi, Patty. Thanks for having me on. No problem. Uh, Patty, I wanted, I wanted to just uh, talk a little bit about uh, what's going on over on the Port of Port Peninsula. Sure. And I, I, I don't really want to dig into any details of any specific thing, but as I've obviously followed this in the news and on the radio and people have been phoning into your show quite often, I'm just trying to get my head around uh, what's going on out there, what's really going on underneath the wind project. And... And I'll, I'll say this, I'm an engineer, unfortunately, of 40 years celebrating this year. Um, and I've been involved in the wind business and tall power business for a number of years, putting up some of the turbines here and also a number of the wind monitoring, uh, 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 wind monitoring towers as well. Um, to start this off, as we know, uh, Newfoundland blocked wind power for years and years. Uh, we have the lowest penetration in the whole country. Uh, of wind, uh, and then we had the foolish comments about our wind during this blocking period where the wind wasn't right, it wasn't consistent, it was gusty and all this foolishness, yet there were various projects that had been uh, sanctioned in the province, funds down in uh, St. Lawrence and one up the, one up the shore here, uh, Cape Royal, I think it is up around there, yeah. and then there was one in Ramia, the one, the one I put up. And then out of the blue, Andrew Parsons says, uh-oh, guess what? That's over now. Our change of thinking. Uh, yeah, we were kind of, let's not, let's not lament what the government didn't do before and the fact that we, you know, blocked all this for years, uh, that we could even just keep up with the rest of Canada. And then, that was in May last, May of this year, I believe, or thereabouts. And then mysteriously, just in two months, this massive project is announced, which clearly shows that this was, very well planned long before that announcement and very well choreographed. Uh, and here's the big issue. We, are, we in Newfoundland, we're supposed to swallow this uh, Kool-Aid. We're going to solve Germany's hydrogen problem. Like, with all due respect to the wonderful people in Newfoundland, but world mass-wise or, or ma uh, square area mass-wise, Port of Port is like the pimple on the fly and the pimple on the fly and the pimple on the fly and the elephant. And just out of the blue now, we are going to solve Germany's problem. We had the Chancellor over. We had, you know, uh, Trudeau down and all this stuff. And we also just learned that apparently, if I'm getting this right, correct me if I'm not, that they're going to require massive amounts of energy for this. Uh, they're, they've, got, they've bought the port of uh, Stephenville out there, which undoubtedly, like Argentia, which had a, a lining put in it, has massive amounts of contamination and stuff from the U.S. operations there, and they're going to stir, stir that up. The environmental seems to have just disappeared. Like, how can you have a project with equipment being shipped and all this in place, uh, and where's the environmental? Like, this should have, this should have taken years. And we also hear that apparently they interviewed 190 people, 170 of which uh, agreed that this should be a big project. Like, where, where were these people? Are they all friends and family? Like, it's just so, it's just so 
crazy what's going on here. And, you know, it's, it's preposterous to even think that this has gone this far. And we just also heard that Jennifer Williams, uh, I guess the head of Hydro now, uh, has, has never admitted to the fact that Mossberg Falls is simply not working. Uh, I think they said they tested it to, I don't know what they tested, 250 megawatts as opposed to the 900 or whatever it was supposed to be. No, it, it, it did pass a 700 megawatt test, yeah, but we have not conducted the 900 and it won't happen until April next year. Right, but they have number, but they've said that the number one turbine has to be completely dismantled. And maybe more. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. There's there's still majorly complications. We, I've asked those questions directly of Jennifer Williams on this program, and you know, add into it now another five hundred twenty-seven million dollars for an eighth unit at Bay to Spare. We World Energy says that there's parts of the air that are going to need upwards of one hundred and fifty megawatts of reliable electricity from hydro, and we don't even know where that comes from. I mean, at this point, Hatch went in and did a review about uh, options, and they're recommending one hundred and fifty megawatt uh, diesel uh, turbine to be installed at Holyrood, but that would only cover world energy's needs, not any actual uh, low demand forecast by the end of this decade, which would include people transitioning from oil, electric vehicles, and everything else under the sun. Population growth add to it. So I don't know what's going on either, to be honest with you, Sean. But ultimately, doing away with, you know, those were the two problem bills, right? Bill 1661. One took the PUB out of adjudicating Muskrat Falls related uh, uh, rates, and the other one was the ban of the wind. It's a good thing that it went away because not all wind projects are created equal. You know, there's a huge difference between onshore wind for hydrogen ammonia export versus nearshore, offshore wind for domestic use. So, you know, it had to go away in full for us to even be able to uh, investigate or evaluate the contribution of offshore wind. Uh Just one second. I'm on the phone. Um, Sorry about that. No problem. You know, and there's something going on here that's just so inconceivably outlandish uh, they were, like you said, were, I think uh, Jennifer Williams mentioned something like a $500 million project to put a new turbine in somewhere. We've had this flip flop over and over again whether we're going to keep uh, Holy Road, whether we're going to disband it. I mean, finally, we've come to the realization, not saying it, that Muskrat is so unreliable that we don't have a hope in hell of ever shutting that place down. Or, or if you do, you got to be you got to be out of your mind. Yeah, the five hundred million uh, ish number is five hundred twenty-seven million dollars for an eighth generating unit at Bay to Spare, and the one fifty megawatt diesel generator is simply for backup power if there's six continuous weeks of blackout and rolling brownouts because of problems with yeah. the Labrador Island Link or transmission throughout the Long Range Mountains. So that's not even addressing any needs for additional industry. You know, at some point in the very near future, there's going to be mining expansion and new mining in Labrador, given all the thirst for critical minerals. How they get powered? Don't know. What does that mean for 2041? No idea. What does it mean for Gull Island? Absolutely no clue. So there's some huge looming questions. Well, and, and I'll say, and I've just got a few more notes, if I'm going to say this, and, and if anybody thinks that what's going on on the West Coast is about wind energy, drink another glass of Kool-Aid. There is something going on out there that hasn't been disclosed, that's gonna unfold. It's just so ridiculous outlandish that we are gonna solve uh, Germany's energy problem. Number one, we're not. But, uh, Sean, what do you think might be going on? Because people are saying that to me all the time. I can't go to the grocery store without someone asking me about what's going on behind these wind conversations. I don't know. I'm not saying that there's nothing else going on here because it certainly feels like there's another shoe just had dangling two feet over the floor, but I don't know what it is. 
do you care to opine? Yeah. Well, you know, I, th- I think this has all the earmarkings of another boondoggle, or I don't even know what the word is, if it's Ponzi scheme, just something so outlandishly possibly corrupt that we can't even, we're, we're not even at a level to understand this. Like, how is it this just got unleashed? And in, this is what, October, and all, I understand that there's equipment and blades and turbines moving out there. Like, how did this happen? I didn't hear anything about uh, a, a tender that went out to the world. Uh, everybody that I know that's in the wind business, and I was involved in Canary for a number of years ago at the conferences, like everybody just had the door slapped in their face by Hydro here saying no, no, no. And then out of the blue, this we got this thing just unrolling full bore down the road. No, and you know, precious little environmental. Yeah, boys, you agree with this? Yeah, we'll go with this. And, and even to further, the further funny part about it is Diamond Resources had bought, it's reportedly, the airport and guess what they're going to do they're going to make drones patty isn't it what are we going to call the drones are we going to call that sprung drones maybe that would be a good name for them? what do you so, like what sort of draw what uh, sort of connection are you making between the steamville airport and wind well i'm not it's all part of what's going on out there like like i just can't figure it out like this this guy is going to build you know it's just another piece of this puzzle that i can't figure out about what is going on in port of port there's something else somebody's got the airport somebody's got the port they're they're buying up massive pieces of land to produce hydrogen ship ammonia like something doesn't fundamentally make sense and and they bought the airport on the pretext that they're going to make drones like give me a break dji patriot whoever is shipping uh, drones over to the ukraine these, these and the u.s of course the u.s air force these guys have been making drones for 30 years what are we going to do on the, on the Port of Port of Pinsa in, in the middle of you know out nowhere? Yeah. We're going to become a drone king? Well, I mean, the drones here, and these questions have been asked directly, whether or not the, the truth is coming out or they're accurate information, I don't know, but I've asked the question directly. These are cargo drones. No military uh, capabilities, no relationship with the military, straight up cargo. The biggest ones in the world, they don't even exist. So whether that ever happens, <laughs> I guess, remains to be seen. I mean, come on, Teddy. Like, even if you had that idea and, and other people are talked about just because you know we we just can't figure out what's going on uh if you were going to build drones newfoundland would be the last place in the world i do it unless there's going to be massive amounts of government money going in going somewhere because why would you ship anything in material to newfoundland when the market is not in newfoundland you know that that was like epic rock down in uh or wherever they was going on the columbia ship shipping up massive amounts of granite uh to cut granite and ship it back down to the uh, New England seaboard. I mean, it just makes no sense. So anyway, that's, that's all I got to say on this today. But there's so many big things not right with this project. It's going ahead like a steamroller. Uh, again, environmental is precious little. Uh, consultation is precious little. There was no tender in that I'm aware of. I mean, it, you know, why wasn't it on the front page of the paper that Newfoundland is proposing this? And now G2 Energy and the other buys are, you know, 
steam on them. It's like there's something not right. Sure. I don't know where an RFP would come to play because it's not a provincial project where, you know, had it been, then there would have been a requirement for an RFP as opposed to, like, if a call center comes to the province, we don't have an RFP for that either. So I'm not trying to belittle your point, but I don't know how the province could put forward an RFP for something like this if if we're not actually directly involved as an equity stakeholder or as an investor, which at this moment in time we're not. There's tons of federal money, and I'm a federal taxpayer as much as I am a provincial and a property taxpayer in St. John's. So point taken, Sean. Appreciate the time this morning. But how did they get the land? How did they get the land? Well, they don't have the land yet. The ground land assessment is not even done. They get 18 months from the last time the four companies were told they could proceed. So at this point, and it's land lease only, which was always a big concern that many people voiced. You know, you buy the land, the hydrogen business goes sideways, you own all this crown land to do whatever you might see fit. But at this point, it's lease and lease for this purpose only. Lease reverts if it moves away from the intended purposes of the crown lands. Lease. That's that's how it's written. That's what we understand. Very quickly, I'll give you the last word. Okay, okay, but if I had a piece of land that was worth a lot of money and somebody just approached me and said, I want to do this with, I'd, I'd probably first in time say, yeah, that sounds like a good idea, but I'm going to put this out to out to the public, out to the world to see, to give it the litmus test of what's going down here, if it makes sense, does anybody else think that it makes sense, and hey, maybe there's a better deal out there, you know, that's what I would have done. But anyway, I'll throw it up there. Thank you very much for your time. I appreciate yours. Thanks, Sean. Okay. All right. Take care. Bye-bye. And in a similar vein, we're going to talk about Wearac right after the break. Don't go away. Nutrition, exercise, keeping the cold at bay. Whatever keeps you feeling great, the Wellness and Healthy Lifestyle Show on your VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Uh, where are we here? Let's go. Say good morning to the co-chair of the Wilderness and Ecological Reserves Advisory Council. That's Graham Wood. Good morning, Graham. Here on the air. Good morning, Patty. It's a beautiful day here in central Newfoundland. Glad to hear it. Yes, um, I wanted to call in about um, our public engagement sessions that are going ahead in the next uh, few weeks uh, on the Indian Armbrook proposed ecological reserve. Okay. And uh, yeah, we've uh, this is the first one that we're moving ahead now in in stage two or phase two of uh, consultations. So uh, on the 18th of October. Uh, we're having a virtual session uh, for anybody in the province through the Engage NL site. So anybody today can go on to engagenl.ca and uh, register their uh, questions and comments and stuff on the proposed ecological reserve for Indian Arm Brook. And on November 1st, we have a public engagement session happening at the Brittany Inns in Lewisport. Uh, that'll happen between uh, 6.30 and 9 o'clock. Uh, and uh, that's on November 1st. So we're encouraging people to come out uh, that are in the uh, Indian Arm Brook area or anybody who wants to show up at that public engagement session and uh, and be part of it and bring their comments and concerns or uh, at least learn about the importance of uh, protecting ecosystems in this province. What specifically is on the agenda for the two areas that you talked about? Well, Indian Arm Brook, uh, that's the first one that we're going to have public consultations on. And that's the proposed reserve that stretches from the Camelton River system up to uh, Indian Arm Brook uh, towards Mount Payton, or south, if you want to call it, Trans-Canada Highway, and uh, over towards Glenwood. And what, I'm just wondering what some specific concerns would be there, certain things that are screaming for fur- further or added protection. Well, really, uh, the major concerns is that, uh, you know, in, in uh, Eco Region 2A, which stretches really from Clarenville to, uh, to Deer Lake, 
the major forested area there's very limited areas that are not uh, that are not impacted by uh, by harvesting as well as mining but uh, what we're trying to do as you know with uh, with the protections of uh, ecosystems in the provinces to protect uh, those particular eco regions there are 19 in the province and we're trying to make sure that in the plan the home for nature that uh, those areas have protection in perpetuity. Do we have before we get back to reiterating the details of the two upcoming meetings? Uh, can you give us some understanding, Graham, of the status of the report that was submitted years overdue to the provincial government for consideration by cabinet? Do we know where that is? Yes, uh, the cabinet has agreed now to go ahead with ten proposed reserves. And uh, those particular areas, some of them are on the Avalon, some of them are on the west coast and uh, south coast, uh, Fushu Bay, uh, Stony Lake, uh, Con River North, as well as the west coast, uh, Cape St. George, which you know is uh, is an ecological reserve that mm-hmm. was uh, at least originally to be impacted by uh, World Energy GH2. And uh, so we've got an agreement that they would not uh, put any of those turbines in in that proposed reserve and, and keep a buffer. Fair enough, because, you know, there was a lot of vitriol flying around when the consultations were ongoing. The final report was drafted and had submitted. But, of course, it has no authority within WERAC. It's all recommendations for the cabinet to consider. Exactly. Well, this is the government's. Uh, the government's agreed with uh, with the national government and I suppose the world in terms of trying to uh, trying to protect ecosystems. Uh, you know, they want 30% of terrestrial and marine ecosystems protected by 2030, uh, 25% by uh, 2025. But as you know, in our area, in this in this province, at least on the island that uh, we're basically, if we uh, move ahead with our proposed reserves, we'll be getting up to about 7 or 8%. So we're still way behind, uh, you know, what the goal was really by 2020 to be at uh, 15 or 17%. Yeah, we're nowhere near. And it's, it is remarkable how many people don't see any importance attached to protections because you don't get it back you know you can pretend to reclaim land but of course once it's gone it's you know it doesn't mean it's dead in the water but we're losing biodiversity and the numbers of species of flora and fauna that have gone by the wayside and are never coming back it's staggering it really truly is and that's a global issue not necessarily simply a provincial or a national issue uh graham give the folks the details one more time about the word of the wind for the public meetings well, the virtual session is going to happen on November or on October the 18th, and that'll be online on the Engage NL site. So you need to log into EngageNL.ca and register, and that'll happen uh, at 6:30 uh, p.m. between 6:30 and 8 p.m. And in Lewisport at the Brittany Inns on November 1st, there will be a public engagement session where a number of WERAC uh, members will be there and uh, be able to get, uh, you know, presentations on the importance of protecting ecosystems and to get their feedback as stakeholders in the area. I appreciate the time and the work you're doing, Graham. Thanks a lot. Thank you very much, Patty, and have a great day. And one other thing, Patty, before I go, can I wish my wife a very happy birthday tomorrow? Absolutely. And uh, just, uh, you know, I love her, and uh, and there's a very special day tomorrow. I won't say what what number, but uh, anyway, uh, all the best. I wasn't going to let you say what number, just to ruin this happy, loving wish. <laughs> Thanks a lot, Graham. You take care. You too, buddy. And happy birthday to your wife. 
Yes, thank you very much. You're welcome. Bye-bye. Graham Wood is the co-chair of WERAC. Let's take a break. When we come back, SEAL. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number three. Say good morning to Darren Halloran from Always in Vogue. Good morning, Darren. You're on the air. That's kind. How about you? Oh, not too bad. Um, I'm just thanks for taking my call today. I'm just calling uh, to let people know about the Poppy campaign. Always in Vogue started four years ago. Um, the first year we started it, it was a very small. We made 50 seal fur poppies, uh, laid them at our counter in the store, posted a couple of pictures, uh, you know, on our social media, and then all of a sudden it went viral. Uh, the first year we ended up making a thousand seal fur poppies, with 100% of the profits being donated to the Royal Canadian Legion, the Poppy Fund. Mm-hmm. Um, this money's used for the veterans. Uh, you know, they can they can apply within the within the um, Legion and. They can use it for things that they need to use it for. Um, anyway, every year we've decided to uh, <coughs> excuse me. Every year we've decided to make a thousand poppies, and it's been a huge success. Uh, we're hoping this year to reach eighty thousand dollars for the for the total over the four last four years. Um, you know, and it's just something that we. We we want to be able to give back to the you know to the veterans if we can. Um, it's something that, like I said, it started small and now it's become a huge success for us. So, just wanted to make a little bit of awareness out there, and you know they can if somebody wants to order them, they can reach us on social media on our Facebook or our Instagram pages, or they can call us at our store. Uh, it's a terrific fundraising initiative, and of course, it's a permanent poppy as well. And so, you know, we all try to make our donations leading up to November 11th, and hopefully, people will do exactly that again this year. How are sales this year? Sales are doing good. Um, you know, we're pro- we're halfway there. We try to start early so that we don't interfere with with the veterans when they're out selling their yep. poppies as well, right? So, you know, I've I always check in with with the people at the Legion, and they always tell me that you know, like once ours are done, then they're getting out there and they're they're having a great success with it as well. You know, it's it's a statement piece and all of our staff work really hard to to do it and you know, like I said, a th- 100% of the donation is going to the to the legion. So, it's just something that we could we're doing to try to give back if we can. Terrific. So, how much for a poppy? They're $20. And like I said, you can reach us on our social media pages, on our Facebook or Instagram, or you could call the store at 709-722-9432. Well, let's hope you sell all 1,000 before the veterans and other volunteers make their presence where they're selling their own poppies. Uh, what's the demand like for the product, Aaron? Not just the poppy, but for the product that you produce. The product, uh, you know, when it comes to the seal, you know, I tell people right now we're as busy as we've always been. I mean, Newfoundland and Labradorians always support the industry um you know if they, if they don't like it they don't just don't talk about it so you know jacket sales are, are up and you know we make all of our accessories and our jackets in in-house and things are things are good things are good so it's one thing to have public support but of course the seal conversation gets huge and sometimes gets quite heated and you know people talk about government support the harvesters don't even take the entirety of the seal quota anymore why because there's nowhere to sell it it's one thing to be able to service your you and your needs and other seal furriers but what does it look like for government support and what do you think should be done here because whether it be about rebuilding the cod stock or anything else under the sun because the population has absolutely exploded there's been some 
half-wit decisions made like by the World Trade Council. You know, it's fine to go to a bullfight, but you can't import seal products. So there's a lot of hypocrisy out there. What do you think governments could and should be doing here to advance the cause, to advance the industry? It's a great, that's a great question. And I mean, you know, we met, I met last month with the, uh, with the Senate. Fabian Manning has been a huge supporter of the industry. And, you know, he was a great friend of my father and he wanted me to come and present. And we did. And the feedback, the feedback in that room was great. You know, everybody was positive. Everyone's trying to, uh, you know, to stay on the same page. My personal opinion is we need to try to get an exemption in the U.S. market. Um, you know, I'm down on Water Street, and as soon as you walk off that cruise ship, you can come right into our store. And the Americans absolutely love our product. And I'm, and my personal opinion is, is if we could open that market and give it an opportunity, then we have something that we can talk about. I don't think we need to think too big and think we need to try to reopen the European market and the Chinese, you know, the Asian market right now. I think we need to focus on getting that exemption because it's, you know, the, the Mammal Protection Act is a silly thing for us, you know, because now what's happening is all the seals are starting to get into the American waters and they're eating their fish and, and now they're going to have to deal with the problem and once they see that, then maybe they'll start to want to have the conversation with us. And, you know, just to another point, with a seal it's fully utilized. There's not many animals in the world, Patty, that you can say are fully utilized. So it, right now, yes, it's a, it's a touchy subject, and right now people would rather just ignore it than deal with it. But, I mean, you look at what's happening with the fish in our oceans, and they're going to have to open up the conversations and try to be a little bit more positive towards us. And I have conversations with Cliff Small all the time, and Cliff is a huge supporter to try to, to, try to do something and to do the proper things because I don't think a call is the answer. I think that we need to work on the industry. There is a huge interest in the product and from what I've seen and I mean I'm you know I'm on the floor every day dealing with customers so it's one of those things that we gotta we gotta try to look at the look at the positives and stay away from the negatives you know it's an ugly hunt I mean you're doing it on white ice so it's not going to look nice no, but they're using visuals from the 70s and 80s to sell their, to sell the lie. You know, I mean, if I'm not mistaken, they call sea lions off the coast of California. So, again, there's some baked-in hypocrisy going here. You know, for me, it's not only the fully fully utilized uh, animal, whether it be the fur or the meat, and, yes, the omega-3 oils, which are very trendy and unique when it comes to seal. So there's ways here to open this conversation and to put some actual facts on the table versus hack a of white coats in 1965. So maybe just maybe we can change that channel and i can only imagine the success that a shop like yours might have in manhattan it would be madness <laughs> i'd love to open one someday no no doubt you would so <laughs> once again the purpose of the call today was to promote the poppy campaign yeah. so a seal for a poppy 20 dollars each 100 percent of the profits go towards the royal canadian legion you can pick them up at always involved give them a call check them out on social media Thank you, Patty. Have a nice day. Appreciate your time, uh, Darren. And now that I have you, you mentioned your dad. Bernie was a great guy. Uh, he was really a great guy, and everyone was always had a smile on their face when they spent any time with your dad. He passed away earlier this year. I think I'd probably reach out to you, but I want to reiterate that I thought he was a brilliant young fella, and uh, our condolences. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Thanks, Darren. Take care. All right. Take care. Have a nice right. day. You too. Bye-bye. Okay. Yeah, Bernie, boy, he was something else, that guy. Uh, let's take a break for the news. Don't go away. Your voice in Newfoundland and Labrador's biggest conversation. If you want to know what's happening in your province, tune in to Open Line every day. Have your say weekday morning starting at 9 a.m. on Open Line with Patty Daly on your VOCM. 
Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number four. Doreen, you're on the air. Good morning, Daddy. How are you? I'm doing okay. How about you? I'm kind of teed off. Okay, let's hear about it. Okay, I'm a home care worker. I haven't received the check. It'll be a month this Saturday coming. And I'm not alone. I was talking to the bookkeeper yesterday that does our checks. Western Health still hasn't approved our hours. Uh, My client social worker met with me last week, and she said it was her fault that our check was being delayed because she never put in the right paperwork. But we should receive a check by Friday. That was last Friday. This Saturday, we'll be a month behind. So this is all about a, a unsubmitted paperwork issue? Yes, exactly. Uh, well, what I'm thinking, and a lot of the other workers that I was think, talking to, uh, when their month of their yearly ends and they don't have their paperwork because they're not on top of it done, this is what happens to us. Like, we have bills, we have groceries. And I live with my client who's mentally and physically delayed, and he also has a bag, a me bag. Okay, and home care work is tough work, period. So uh, just so I make sure I understand this, you work for the Newfoundland and Labrador Health Department? Western Health, yes. Yeah, and of course all the health, uh, all the various uh, RHAs are inside the one umbrella now. So I don't even understand the issue with submitting approval for hours because if you have approval in place and you have a permanent full-time client that you actually live with, what kind of approval of hours is even required here? Well, what happened... Uh, I live with my client, and he needs 24-hour care. So when he got the bag last October, like, I don't get paid through the night. I, from 4 to 12 is what I get paid. So they don't pay me through the night because he's sleeping. But now with this colostomy bag, he's up through the night. And okay. sometimes like, there's issues. Okay. So we got actually two hours a night approved back a couple of months ago and apparently social worker where he's gone over the grade she needed to submit new paperwork but when I was talking to the bookkeeping company yesterday she told me they got a folder full of home care workers that never got paid for a month so that can't be the issue yeah I guess I'm just confused is if there's already approval of hours in place how often do you have to have reapproval offered I don't know. I don't know if it's because it's the year's end. This is what's delaying our check. Oh, okay. Still. Another thing I wanted to bring up, Elizabeth Jenkins, president of the Home Care, made a a statement a couple of uh, weeks ago saying that there's going to be a rate increase for the home care workers to keep the seniors and disability people in their homes. But she just mentioned agencies. Does that include Western Health? I don't know. We've actually invited Ms. Jenkins on the show. The way I heard her comments, though, this was in reaction to the fact that the province put seven or eight million dollars into home care. And as far as I remember, it wasn't about increasing wages. It was about increasing standards of care. Oh, I thought that was a bit, some of it was going to go to a rate increase for the home care workers. I'll have to go back and find the story, but I thought I thought it was all about increased standards of care that are coming to uh, practice. So we did invite yeah, Ms. I, Jenkins on, and we'll try her again to get her on. I appreciate that, Patty, and I did read that too, but I think she said 
is not all going to that. It's going to top up the home care workers too. Okay. Basically, basically we're not getting paid anything. And uh, we never had, the first time we had a raise was this April after waiting six years. Now they said that we're indispensable. Why don't they start trying to prove it? Well, fair enough, uh, because there's big conversations about, you know, expanding the opportunity for people to remain in their own home for longer before they find themselves in a long-term care bed or whatever the case may be. So that's going to require expansion of home care, no doubt about it. So yeah. unless we get that right first, there's no chance we're going to expand aging in place if we don't have the supports in place because home care jobs are hard to satisfy. They're hard to get people to take them on. The pay does not add up to the tough work and the important work that yeah. home care providers uh, put forward. So. I get where you're coming from. Doreen, last one before I let you go. Do you know when you're going to get paid? No. Uh, I was talking to book, uh, the bookkeeping company that we provided our checks 10 to 4 yesterday, and they said they still has not approved our hours. Yeah, I've, I suppose I'm going to have to start with trying to figure out basically how often you need your hours approved because if you have whatever circumstance you have, and there was a couple of overnight hours that were approved some while back, why do we have to keep approving things? If your circumstance hasn't changed, your client hasn't changed, the circumstances haven't changed, then what's the paperwork even required for? So I'll, I'll see if I can figure that much out and see if we can't get an answer directly from Mr. Diamond, at the, who's at the helm of uh, the Newfoundland Labrador Health Services, which is now all of the four regional health authorities under the one umbrella. We'll see what we can find out, Doreen. I appreciate that, Patty. You have a good day. Yeah, you too. Take care. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye-bye. Look, I mean, these conversations are happening, right? We had Susan Walsh, the province's seniors advocate, on the show some while ago. She had just returned from Ottawa speaking with some of her provincial counterparts. And there is talks about creating an aging-in-place tax credit. And we know more and more people would absolutely love, you know, based on their medical needs, of course, they would like to be in their own home. It's where they're most comfortable, it's close by their family, it's close by their friends, it's familiar surroundings. And now some people might absolutely want to be in a setting like a long-term care or congregate living because maybe they're lonely. And so between that and their medical needs, that sounds like exactly what they need and want. But you know full well there's going to be more people who would like to stay at home. And if the supports required to stay at home are not in place, then it's all just talk. Right? It doesn't come to reality. And for supports, you need human beings. You need human resources that have to be paid properly for the services that they're providing. What we have not seen is, for, for example, if you're someone who has six hours uh, a day approved for a home care support and you think that you need 10, and if you did the math about what it takes to have that support increased to stay at home versus the overall cost to have you occupy a bed in a long-term care facility, because this is not about just spend, 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 spend. It's about quality of life and the mathematical comparison. Stands to reason that support in, at, at home would be more cost-effective than what it costs to be in a provincially owned and operated and maintained long-term care facility. We haven't seen that dollars and cents comparison, but we're going to see if we can get it so we can figure out the conversation a little clearer. All right, let's take a break. When we come back, Mike wants to respond to what Cyril had to say about Moose and Jordan Brown, who's the uh, NDP member for Lab West, talking about the fact that Decora, Scully Mine Operator in Wabush in Western Labrador, has secured creditor protection from uh, the Ontario Superior Court. What that means for operations, we'll find out Jordan's perspective right after this. Welcome back to the program. Before we get to the Decora Mine, let's go to line number three. Good morning, caller. You're on the air. Hello, Patty. Hiya. Whoa. Yeah. 
Yeah, I just uh, found a wallet outside of Marie's on uh, Black March Road. Okay. I gave I gave to the cashier. She's got it. Good man. So good, honest people out there. So if you lost your wallet and you're in and around the Marie's on Black Marsh Road, go to the till and announce yourself. Match it up with the ID inside and get your wallet back. Thank you, Eddie. Appreciate it. Thank you. Bye-bye. All right. Bye-bye. 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 Uh, good stuff. Uh, let's go to Leonard One. Say good morning to the NDP member for Lab West. That's Jordan Brown. Good morning, Jordan. You're on the air. Good morning. Thanks for having me on, Patty. Happy to have you on. Yeah, so um, as I guess most of the province is aware now that uh, uh, Tacora Resources uh, filed in the Ontario uh, court for uh, CCAA protection, and as most people know, that acronym is not very well received in Labrador, uh, given the situation uh, in 2014, um, but they have uh, filed for uh, CCAA. Yeah, so has that now been arranged? There was an investor in place that fell through. My understanding is that there is a, an agreement. It's only short term, though. It's only for the next 20 weeks or until the end of next February, about $75 million to cover, simply to cover costs for operations. Is that where we are? Yeah, so right now there is a uh, – one of the investors has uh, put up uh, $75 million to uh, to – I guess get the, the facility through the uh, the CCAA process um, so that they can continue operations um, and continue on as uh, business as normal. So right now there's no layoffs, no changes to uh, pay, no changes to any of the benefits they receive. They actually will still even uh, are eligible for their performance bonuses, and they uh, even said that any jobs that have been posted online uh, for there they will continue hiring. There's no hiring freeze as well. Uh, they've told me so. There is business as usual is the plan while they go through the CCAA process. Not sure what financial conditions have been so negatively impacted at Decor. They've been operating that mine since uh, 2019. They actually very recently got federal funding for uh, the processing of manganese. So with the strength of the ore market and federal funding to add to their portfolio with the manganese issue, what exactly is going on there? Uh, from what it seems to be is that uh, uh, between the uh, the financiers and coming to an agreement for uh, you know f- the future of the operation, it seems that that uh, that process uh, fell through, and that they were left with no choice but to uh, file for CCAA. So walk people through what that means, because you know there's been lots of these types of stories in the mining industry, whether we talk about floor, spar, bay, vert, and otherwise. Ultimately, it may end up with the smaller, unsecured vendors carrying the bag at the end of all this. So what, to your understanding, what does this process mean for this particular operation and the 280 current unionized workers on site? So right now, like 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 I said earlier, that the 289 uh, current unionized workers will continue to be paid. They'll continue to work. They're still eligible for all their benefits. There's no reduction in pay. There's no reduction in their even their bonuses or anything like that. So they'll continue to operate during this process. Most of what this process now is, unfortunately, um, anything that's creditors that are owed to the vendors and stuff like that will now be under the scrutiny of the um, uh, of the CCAA process, um, going through with the monitor and the courts. So so that's the, that's the hard part right now. That is that these vendors and stuff now things are on hold for their payment for them until it gets through this process. Um, right now but everyone else will continue to work as normal. And I know most people who've who've gone through this now before in the past with cliffs, um, you know, it, it's uh, you know, it's a, it's a flashback to 2019 where things are going to be on hold for these people and these individuals. 
Fair enough. Uh, I'll just run this by you because, you know, a lot of the issues with the boom and the bust and even we're talking about trying to hire teachers or people to work in the mines or whatever the case may be, is somewhere to lay your head. And, of course, we're dealing with a major issue right here in the metro region and people who talk about the tent encampment across from Confederation Building. I've often wondered about the approach to a benefits agreement, you know, specifically in Labrador, specifically with mining. We can talk about royalties uh, paid to the province. We can talk about expanded tax base and all the rest. So I just wonder what the wisdom would be of including housing directly in the benefits package or the benefits arrangement, because it does become one of the complicating factors. Like even if it was part of it was not, not monies that went to the government, which of course has their own agenda and their own line item of items they want to attack, but you know, make the mining company build the housing. And uh, upon closure of the mine, it just reverts back to provincial ownership. I, like, I don't know why that hasn't been part of it. Your thoughts? Well, absolutely. Like we, we, we see this, this this cycle, but right now, like this this particular situation that has come out, ore is trading at a hundred and fifteen dollars a ton. That's been average now for over a year now. So it's not that there's a dip in you know the ore is not is worthless or anything like that. Uh, this is clearly some internal issue uh, dealing with this particular facility. Um, you know, um, our, our, you know the other mines in the region are um, can't get enough workers, can't get the ore out of the ground fast enough, and can't get it to market fast enough. So you know this is a very absurd situation that is outside of, I guess, what would normally be up and down of the market. But back to the part of housing, um, absolutely that, you know, these mines do have a pressure on communities when it comes to how they operate. Um, you know, when things are good or when they're operating and when they're expanding and stuff like that, it puts a massive amount of pressure on uh, the two municipalities here uh, to actually get, uh, you know, or the ground, but also to get you know people into the region to do the work. Uh, I like I said, I got 37 people on the wait list for Newfoundland Labrador Housing, and I got no units available. Um, the community right now, um, you know, a six-year-old house is going for half a million dollars. You know, these are pressures on the community that just are outside the norms of uh, of society. And having benefits agreements uh, for the adjacency of the minerals would actually be a massive benefit to the region. Unfortunately, for the situation here, these mines here, one mine's been mined here in the region for 70 years, you know, predating even what a benefits agreement was. Uh, and now this, uh, now this operator here had a small benefits agreement, but still they're operating on a lease that's almost 70 years old. Mm-hmm. So this is this is the problem we have with any with the, with, the, with current operations. But any future operations that come to the region, absolutely, I'll be pushing for a benefits agreement, and absolutely, I'll be asking for uh, community uh, community input because. When these large projects come to town, it does bring social issues with it. Um, you know, we see drug use, we see addiction, uh, we see domestic violence. Uh, these things are pressures that you know large industries do bring to regions. Uh, you know, there's benefits of great jobs, but at the same time, there is social ills as well. Yeah, and you know, Tacora with the product it produces, it shuttered in 2014, wasn't reopened until Tacora came to town in 2019, and now they find themselves going through the uh, cost, or pardon me, the credit protection process again. So strange. Stuff. Uh, Jordan, I appreciate the time. Absolutely. You take care, buddy. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Jordan Brown is the NDP member for Labrador West. Uh, let's go to line number two. Mike, you're on the air. Yeah, good morning, Patty. Morning to you. Patty, this is my 75th birthday. Happy birthday. Thank you. And uh, I was planning on going to Tarnville for supper, but uh, our buddy talking about the moose neck got me so frightened to death, I don't know if I'm afraid to drive the highway because of the moose. And I think this is utterly ridiculous of of what they're getting on with. Uh, the moose population is down, way down. Hey, I've seen 
and I've thinking about it all over the years. Uh, all of my driving experience and everything else from time the Virgil Highway was uh, built and uh, down Bay Vert, down the Farewell, the Gander Bay Highway, all of those places there, I've seen at least a thousand moose on the highway in my lifetime. I've never hit one. There's times when I went through Terranova Park, 30, 40 moose was nothing to be seen going through the park in the 60s, 70s. And, you know, here now we are today, I see very few moose on the highway in this area. There's one bag there by Goobies, was talking about. I've seen as high as seven moose on that bag at the same time. Now I haven't seen one in two or three years. And the population of moose is down, down big time. The problem with it is drivers. Now, just the other day, I was I went down to Swift Current to the post office, and I came back to turn in the gravel road that I live on. And anyway, I was coming towards Goobies from uh, Swift Current, turning the Old Mill Road opposite North Harbor. Anyway, I put on a signal light, started to slow down, uh, there's no turning lane there. There's like a, a no-man's land there with a line around it. And I was turning there to make left turn. I looked, and here was a car coming up my left side. And I was cutting into the car that was past me on the inside. And it was totally ridiculous. And this was a government vehicle. And uh, anyway, what I'm saying is that, look, there's not the moose. It's the drivers. These people are so packed should be out there. They should have their meetings, but they should be discussing, well, what did I do wrong that I struck a moose? How can I be a better driver than not strike the moose? Yeah, but uh, you can be really, you can be very cautious behind the wheel and still unfortunately hit a moose. And even just just because someone drives across the island and doesn't see moose doesn't mean the moose weren't there. Same thing with driving across the island and not seeing a police car doesn't mean the police aren't out there. There's somewhere in an average of about 540 or 550 moose vehicle collisions a year. So doing what we can do, whether it be personal responsibility behind the wheel, because I'm not arguing with you, uh, we do have a lot of control as the driver. But like some places, you can be absolutely uh, purely diligent, looking from side to side, looking straight ahead, not on your phone, not arsing around, but the alders are up on the shoulder before you know there's a moose in the windshield. So there's other things that can be done in addition to your own responsibility, don't you think? Yeah, yes. Uh, I agree with you there that this tearing of the brush and all that stuff, that's very important. It should be done, and government shouldn't have be re, uh, told about it. They should have enough sense to do it on their own. That's got to be done. Uh, you don't get any argument with me there. Uh, you got to be able to see. My argument is that is that if you're driving down that highway and you're driving at a speed that you can stop as far as you can see, you're not going to have an accident. Uh, but the thing is, is people are driving faster than the distance that they can stop when they see a moose. And a lot of people, the moose, they're going along, guiding their cars, uh, lining up the fender by the side of the road, driving down the road, or lining up the center line, uh, driving down the road. They're not looking ahead. They're not looking ahead to see what is up ahead of them. And next thing you know, it's just, oh, the moose pops up. But the moose was there for two or three minutes before they came along. So, you know, like I said, it's, it's a thing there. There's a combination of everything. And I agree, you know, with what you said, but there's no one thing that's your for hitting the moose. I almost hit one 
the closing day of the, the fishing season. Uh, the road that I'm on is a gravel road. I was driving up the road. I had my head turned looking in a small pond there for ducks. And uh, when I looked up, there was a moose running along in front of me. Now, there's not my, uh, not uh, the moose's fault if I struck him. It's because I wasn't paying attention. I was looking in the pond for, for ducks. And the moose just went off the road then when I slowed down. But I almost struck him, but it wasn't all the moose. And I, I wouldn't be able to blame the moose. It was my inattentiveness uh, to, to the road. What? Yeah, it's part of it. And look, stopping distance is a pretty key point. You know, speed does play a role, I would imagine, in some percentage of some of the moose vehicle collisions. Because not every car stops like a Formula One car, right? In perfect driving conditions, on dry roads, if you're going 50 kilometers an hour, it takes about 27, 28 meters to stop. If you're going 110, it takes about 93 or 94 meters to stop. And that's if your, uh, your reaction is immediate. So you do need a lot of time and a lot of space between you, the moose, and another car, or a dock before you're able to stop a vehicle going 110 kilometers an hour. Well, what I'm saying is that I drove over some of the most treacherous roads all my life uh, through working that hour, all hours of the day and night. I've seen at least a thousand moose in the road, if not more. And I've never struck one and nobody in my family has struck one. And uh, what it is or whatever, I don't know. But there's some underlying reason of why some people... If there's a moose in the road, they're going to hit it. Uh, like one fellow there told me, oh, I got eight family members that are after striking moose. And well, then they're after hitting two or three moose themselves. And, uh, you know, it's amazing. There's like the fellow out there between Butterpot, just the straight there to towards St. John's from Butterpot. He went out there one day, beat up a brand-new car, went and got another brand-new car, and a day or so afterwards, stuck him another moose in the same spot and broke up that. Well, yeah, it know. might it's not might not be a problem for you, but it might be a problem for others. And there's all the contributing factors that we've discussed here this morning. Mike, I'm late for the news, but once again, happy birthday to you. Go on into Clarenville and have a bite. <laughs> Thank you, sir. You're welcome. All the best. All right, let's take a break. Uh, when we come back, still plenty of time left in the program for you on a topic of your choosing. Don't go away. Start your day off right. Get the latest updates on news, traffic, and weather conditions, plus interviews with today's newsmakers, your go-to source before you get on the go. 5.30 to 9 a.m. weekdays, your VOCM mornings. Welcome back to the show. Let's go. Line number one, Stu, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Good morning to you. Uh, the gentleman you were talking to, Mike, I think it was there, uh, either he's pretty intuitive or he has a crystal ball because he seems to know what everybody's doing when you're running down the highways. You're only looking at the, uh, the, the yellow line or the side of the road. You know, how foolish. Uh, Patty, you only got to look on YouTube and see all these videos where moose just completely come across the road like a, like a gunshot and slam into the cars, even cartwheel right over them and pitch on the other side. Some manage to get up and run away, but a lot don't. Uh, I've done a lot of research on the moose, how fast they can move and how far they can move in one second. That's nearly the length of a tractor trailer. And as you alluded to, you were explaining to this guy, that these moose just come out of nowhere, and you can't react. You can't stop on a dime, and you certainly cannot stop uh, at, at pretty much any speed uh, about the length of a car or, or you know, uh, about the time that it's all you got to travel before that moose runs into you. Because it, that's what's basically happening. The moose are actually running into the people, not the other way around. 
So, uh, and fencing, Patty, uh, I mean, uh, fencing is probably the oldest uh, animal control thing in the world, probably before the wheel ever was invented. Uh, you know, we're going to lobby government again for more uh, fencing. Uh, like I said, New Brunswick has got hundreds of kilometers, and uh, and when it comes to the end of the fence where people think that all the moose will end up and run out around the end of the fence, you just got to make a 90-degree or a right angle and go back probably a 1,000 yards with fencing, and that will deter them because uh, moose yard in a specific area probably no more than a couple of kilometers you know so so like uh, but uh, there's just too many accidents patty and let's stop blaming the uh stop blaming the, the drivers and and focus on uh, just that the moose are not controlled like i said if you were driving around st john's and every side road had no stop sign and people just ran out at 35 miles an hour well there'd, there'd be a hell of a lot of accidents wouldn't there yeah, is the short answer. Look, I mean, for me, I've been, I try to be consistent on these things. You know, it's not about exactly the whole blame game. It's about public safety. So if there are some people who maybe have been involved in the collision because they were going 130 kilometers an hour at night, maybe, just maybe, there's a, a finger pointing a blame to be associated with that collision. But that's kind of neither here nor there. We do what works, right? Because you can't gauge how every individual is going to behave when they get behind the wheel. We know it to be true while you have to do is drive around the city of St. John's and people just kind of lose it when they uh, uh, turn o- turn over the ignition. So, yeah, you know, and, and in places with the fencing, you say go back a thousand yards at a right angle to try to deter them. Some animals will still cross the road, like even in national parks in Alberta, where they've actually created the highway networks where there's underpasses for animals and they funnel them into the underpass with fencing. But at the same time, you could go a kilometer down the road and you might strike an animal or you might see an animal, well, in this case, an elk by and large. But you're right. If we take everything into consideration and put all the tools in play, then it will be safer, undoubtedly. And that requires everything. It requires my personal responsibility. It requires my sight lines to be improved, uh, getting rid of the alders up on the shoulder of the road. And, yes, maybe some fencing. Absolutely. No argument here. Yes, exactly. So, uh, like I said, it's uh, yeah. there are ways to combat this. And, like I said, fencing is probably the best way to do it. Uh, uh, again, uh, like you said, you know, uh, these animals are fast, uh, uh, can travel the length of a tractor trailer in one second, and, and, and that's usually across the road in one second. Uh, you know, you just don't have no chance. And we can't, uh, you know, well, like, what are we supposed to do, basically? Uh, I know it sounds ridiculous, but what are we supposed to walk the roads rather than drive? You know, like, you know, it's, it's, it's just not, uh, not the proper way to handle it. But anyway, I appreciate the chance uh, having a chat with you. Uh, we're, like I said, we're going to lobby government again for more fencing because, you know, they seem to find money for other things. Uh, public safety is very important, as you very well know. And I thank you for your time. I appreciate yours. Thanks a lot, Stu. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. All right. uh, There you go. And again, it's like most everything else, right? It's every different component and contributing factor to how somehow a moose ends up in the windshield of a vehicle. And this is not to be morbid, but even with fencing and speed control and time of day and fences and alder being cut back and everything else under the sun, there's still the possibility that the last moose on the island might end up in someone's windshield. So it's there's all those factors. It's not just one thing. That's pretty sure. Uh, let's go to line number three. Glenn, here on the air. Good morning, Patty. Morning to you. 
Yeah. Uh, I just want to comment, uh, if you don't mind, about the moose as well. Sure. I'm. I'm. Uh, I don't live in Newfoundland. I live in Nunavut. Um, two quick stories for you. Um, about eight years ago, I, my, myself, my family left Harbour, Maine, on our way to the airport, 4 a.m. flight. We were on the CBS bypass. The I believe the speed limit there is 90 kilometers an hour. And I was doing about 80, and the moose did run out in front of me, I would say about 100 feet ahead of me. I did manage to slow the vehicle in time. And rather than run across the road, the moose, he decided he was going to follow the lights and ran in front of me. And I suppose these hooves were about four inches from the front of the van by the time I did slow down. So, yeah, uh, I was paying attention, fortunately for me and my family. But I had another I had another experience a few years later. I was uh, back home visiting, and I went up on the highway for the, for, with the hopes of seeing a moose, for, for the want of wanting to see one, I suppose. And I was driving between Holyrood and Salmonair uh, Line. And I was doing about 60 kilometers an hour, just taking my time. And this car went around me like I was standing still. And I'm like, oh boy, this guy is going too fast. And a couple of kilometers down the road, here he was parked by the road. The car was completely flattened and moved on the highway in two pieces. Of course, I stopped and got out and checked on the guy. He was cut and bruised, but okay. And certainly I got him the help he needed. But he told me when he when he went around me, he was doing 130 clicks, and I'm like, <laughs> you got to use your head. Like that's not a smart thing to do up on the highway, especially in Newfoundland. But listening to the conversations that you're having there, obviously, there's a lot of things to be considered. I mean, the government can help with with the road uh, conditions, I guess. But people have to use their heads as well, and sometimes that don't always happen. No, sir, that's absolutely the case. I mean, how often do we see a story where the RNC or the RCMP have pulled over someone going 155 kilometers an hour on the highway, right? Confiscate the vehicle and suspend the license, what have you. That person, if there was ever a possibility for a moose to jump out in front of that car, it's game over, right? It's absolutely game over. You don't have a chance. You don't. You don't have the chance. No, I mean, I was doing 80 kilometers, and again, I was fortunate to be able to slow up so that I didn't hit that moose. But trust me, it was it was scary. So at 130, you don't have a chance. No, it's you absolutely like don't. Bang, it's game I appreciate the call this morning, Glenn. Anything else? Uh, no, that's it. Happy birthday to the gentleman that did call a little while ago. Have a great day back in Newfoundland. Wish I was home. <laughs> uh, thanks a lot, Glenn. Come home anytime. All right, there we go. All right, I'll, thank you. You're welcome. Bye bye. Take care. Yeah, now there is a case. Look. Just to focus on speed maybe misses some of the conversation, but speed is absolutely part of it. You know, you've all seen the dash cam videos where someone going a responsible rate of speed on a highway, day or night, and if you can't see the moose coming, it really limits your opportunity. And they're skittish, and they're on top of you in a heartbeat, so there's obviously a lot to it. All right, final break of the morning, but before we get there, so we all know that the uh, that Judy Foote was the first le- first woman to hold the post as lieutenant governor. She was appointed back in May of 2018. Now the second woman is going to be the next lieutenant governor of the province. That's Joan Maria, Joan Maria Aylward, former president of the Nurses' Union. Of course, she was a liberal cabinet minister, including the finance portfolio for a while. So Joan Marie Aylward, the next lieutenant governor of Newfoundland and Labrador. Let's take a break. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. Well, obviously a few calls there in a row about moose. It used to be that was pretty dominant topic here. But I guess in moose season now, moose hunting season, my buddy got his first um, day one of the hunt, the first hour of the hunt. 
what we don't really absolutely know for sure is what the moose population looks like. The province has changed the way they're approaching at trying to get a, as accurate as possible head count of the number of moose on the island. But I don't think anybody really truly knows. Then you'll have the arguments about who gets the licenses. So in some uh, hunting areas, you know, you're not guaranteed to get a license just because you want one. But when we've seen a decrease in some areas, and the decrease has come at the expense of the locals. No decreases for the outfitters and out-of-province hunters. So that was an issue that was really drawing the eye of a few folks not that long ago. If that's of interest to you, you can bring it forward here on the program. Something struck me, and it was prior to the show this morning, and I don't know why I didn't put it in the preamble, but it's this. You know, and this is all about the RFP that was cancelled for an urgent care clinic. And, you know, so there were seven bidders, and the province is going back to the drawing board. All seven bids came in over budget. And so the government's trying to stick to the budget that they have in mind for this urgent care clinic, which will operate seven days a week, 12 hours a day, very much dissimilar to the one at Whitburn, which operates three days a week and varied hours. The issue here that I'm going to try to broach and connect these dots is the number of companies that do business with the government. There's nothing quite like a government contract, whether it be construction or otherwise. The issue that many people point to when they see who gets contracts is whatever relationship one company or another may indeed have with the governing party. It's safe to say that big corporate players, they'll make donations and they'll spread it around. You know, they'll have some money going to the governing party, some money going to the opposition party, and that will change when the seat of government changes hands. But what we have not seen is any real pragmatic conversation in this province about doing away with the concept or the optics of favoritism. The one surefire way to deal with that is for legitimate and comprehensive campaign finance reform. It's a bit of the wild, wild west here in this province. We don't even do as good a job as they do federally. You would think that the real problem would be on the national front because of the amount of money required to run a federal national campaign. But we just don't have any controls in place here. And what's the outcome? It might be good for fueling the campaign efforts for one party or another, but ultimately comes back to bite them in the backside. Why? Because people will say, and they'll go through the submitted uh, documents from one party, one individual candidate or another, about who gave them the money. And, of course, there's going to be companies that eventually get government contracts that were donors. It doesn't necessarily mean that they only got a contract because they were a donor, but that's the perception. Perception is very much a dose of reality when it comes to voter intention and support for a party and questioning whether or not the procurement process is as tight and as fair and as legitimate as it has to be because there's nothing quite like the gravy of a government contract. Now, some of the companies that win... Again, maybe they had the best bid, maybe they're the best suited, maybe they have the best reputation, maybe they have the best and the largest local uh, quota, quota of uh, employees and workers, but it's that perception issue that just comes back to bite the government. And it doesn't matter which party. You know, parties will always talk about the whole concept and the large conversation of democratic reforms. And that comes in many shapes and sizes. It can be all about first past the post and the 50% plus one. It can be about how committees are struck and how they actually work inside the elected members, all 40 of them. It can also absolutely include campaign finance reform. Because if you look at it, the voter, the donor lists are out there. There's no problem to find them for every party and every candidate through every election in the recent past. And these same players are in play. And I would suggest it's not only about campaign finance reform required in the large scale, but also, you know, 
where is it when we talk about to our collective best interest as the taxpayers of the province when there's still such a thing as paying 500 bucks to have dinner with the premier? You know, I get why those things exist, and I know it's expensive to run a campaign and to operate a political party, but that's kind of the least of my worries. My worries begin and end with policy and the impact it has on my life and your life. And some of that stuff about how expensive it is to run a campaign, it's kind of too bad. You know, it's a vocation you've chosen. There's lots of ways to campaign. And some of that should be doing away with shoe leather as opposed to rubber on the bus that you hired and you put your leader's picture on the side of it, what have you. And all the paperwork and the advertising, still you should advertise the radio, completely effective. But even all the paper that gets sent out, you know, via the mail to try to curry favor with a vote. All the effort to try to get people who you think might support you to the polls on, on election day and what have you. Something, something's got to give on that front because it's bad for us. It's bad for the politician, too. It's a wonder that they can't figure that much out. Okay. Last one before we run out of time here this morning. You know, getting a ton of correspondence from folks out in Central talking about the issue regarding the family care clinic. Everybody thinks it's probably a very good idea. You know, so many of the different services under one roof, whether it be you need to see an occupational therapist, a physiotherapist, a nurse practitioner, a licensed practical nurse, a psychologist, a doctor, if they're all in that one clinic, because not every ailment or need requires seeing a doctor. Now, there's still plenty of people out there that they get that cold comfort. If they go to a clinic or go to the emergency room, they want to see an MD. They want to see that white uh, coat, right? But in fact, there's many things that we come up against and issues regarding our health that it might not necessarily be a doctor. So the collaborative care clinic or the family care clinic or the primary care team sounds like a great idea. The problem is the obvious one. And this is where I don't know if there's any real solutions that have been considered other than financial incentives. For a doctor to work in Grand Falls, Windsor or Deer Lake, $200,000, it's a pretty hefty carrot to dangle in front of somebody. Labrador, $300,000. The problem is, has it actually settled the issue? Because that might be an issue regarding recruitment, but we're also having a devil of a time with retention. So municipalities have now kind of changed the way they approach it, talking about offering up service lots for a dollar, putting their own municipal dollars in addition to provincial dollars for cash incentive. I get why one community would do it. Why? Because they're trying to do the best they can for the residents. But it's very much like the bidding war we have province to province. And the bidding war that might come to pass in more aggressive terms when we have community versus community. Not every community has a service lot to give for a dollar. Not every community has cash to put on the barrel head to influence a doctor to come and set up shop and set up a clinic with a full patient roster where they live. So whether it be provincial guidance on that front, because at this moment, the municipalities have been allowed to do whatever they think is best for their residents, so be it. And federally, they'll all say, well, healthcare, housing, those things, they're provincial jurisdiction. But we're just finding ourselves in an adversarial position. You know, inside the confederation and regional politics, there's always going to be conflict. There's always going to be competition. But if we're simply trying to fix what's broken on both of those H's, healthcare and housing, the competitive nature that the provinces find themselves in because their political fortune is based on how good and easier their citizens' lives are, spending more money doesn't necessarily settle or solve this. We have a population of about 520,000 people with a healthcare budget of $4 billion. Imagine if the only way to improve services is to outbid Saskatchewan or Nova Scotia or BC or Alberta for a doctor or any healthcare professional 
So the budget then becomes what? Four and a half billion dollars. Does that ensure that better healthcare outcomes have come with that additional half a billion dollars? Maybe not, and probably not. So I'm going to, I guess, probably dig into campaign finance a little bit deeper tomorrow because I think that's in all our best interest. Look, if people want to donate their hard-earned money to a political party or an individual candidate, so be it. It's your money. You do whatever you see fit. But anyway, we'll take that on. Let's check in on the Twitter box. We're VOCM Open Line. Follow us there. My voice sort of starts to run out of steam at this point of the show. A lot of talk, not necessarily about the downsides, the problems, the questions, and the lack of answers on some fronts regarding the wind to hydrogen ammonia plays. Now there's, look, it's a worldwide issue. There are going to be expanding markets and a thirst for that product. There's no doubt about it. You know, David sent me along a link, which I had seen earlier in the day in the Financial Post. Uh, Down in the United States, there's $7 billion on the table for these hydrogen hubs. The issue, I think, and one of the differences that we're going to have to wrap our mind around, because we're talking to Darren about the United States being a big market potentially for seal product, same thing with hydrogen. We're not going to settle or solve Germany's energy woes simply with the project on the port of port Peninsula. But will there be some of these projects that find domestic markets? Because that changes the water on the beans, so to speak. All right, that's the Twitter. Uh, email is open at VOCM.com, and we will indeed pick up this conversation again tomorrow morning. Right here on VOCM and Big Land FM's Open Line. On behalf of the producer, David Williams, I'm your host, Patty Daly. Have yourself a safe, fun, happy day. We'll talk in the morning. Bye-bye.